Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. WWE Hall of Famer Kurt Angle here to tell you about saywithconrad.com. Conrad and his team are routinely helping podcast listeners become homeowners, get out of debt faster, and get cheaper monthly payments. They can do it all without perfect credit or money out of pocket. Oh, it's true. It's time to put debt in an ankle lock once and for all. Hurry over to SaveWithConrad.com today to get started. Hey guys, Double J, Jeff Jarrett. Need to call a timeout real quick here. I wanted to tell your listeners what I've been telling my world listeners for a while now. It's about all the incredible things happening over on AdFreeShows.com. We're joined by Wrestling Royalty as David Crockett takes us month by month through Jim Crockett Promotions booking logs. David and Conrad dive into the towns, matches, and money of JCP in January 1985 on The Book. Uh, Charlotte is really the home of Jim Crockett Promotions, is it not? It is. Yes. It's the home. The thing is, the Greensboro was always the home of Starcade. Any, yes. you know, that the the bigger matches we would take to Greensboro, main reason is over the whole area we had more population and road systems going to Greensboro than we did Charlotte. We look back on the Turner years with the men who lived them. For the first time ever, JR, Eric, and Tony sit down with a couple of drinks and share stories like you've never heard before on the Ad Free Show's exclusive After Hours. Well, in 1905, I had a regular size, grown up refrigerator. I was a grown up man. Uh, and I had a washer and dryer. Shazam! And they were, they were moved from, by Turner from uh, Texas to Atlanta. They told me we're gonna put them in storage while you stay at such and such hotel downtown. Chat one-on-one with the Podfather, an extension of the popular Ask Conrad mailbag series. Conrad talks live with ad-free shows members, answering their questions about wrestling, mortgages, and everything in between. I appreciate you saying that. I feel the same way. You know, I've I've met a lot of great people through here, and um, you know, we all have something in common, and, and that's our love of wrestling and our inability to just. Um, let it go you know we, we all have this insatiable thirst and quest for more and we want to learn sure. more and be more involved and i think it's cool that we all really for lack of a better word share a passion like that and as a result man we can have a lot of fun together hey that's just a small taste of what ad free shows has waiting for you including a brand new perk getting to join in on the live recordings of the shows with four levels to choose from see for yourself while ad free shows is the best value in wrestling today sign up now at adfreeshows.com that's right sign up today at adfreeshows.com welcome to something to wrestle with something to wrestle with Brett's Pritchard well you know hey hey it's Gardner Thompson and you're listening to something to wrestle with 
out Bruce Pritchard. Unfortunately, Bruce is burning it at both ends again. The world of WWE never stops. Maybe you've heard that. A lot of moving and shaking, a lot of changes, a lot of chatter. Well, Bruce, of course, is uh, still doing his job, baby, trying to make sure we're entertained every Monday and Friday. And unfortunately, we didn't get a chance to record this week, but we're going to do everything we can in our power to get you another one just in time for the Royal Rumble next weekend. But of course, today is a very special Royal Rumble edition of something to wrestle with. One of our first great episodes I felt like was a Royal Rumble episode uh, when we talked about 1997 in San Antonio of all places, the home of this year's Royal Rumble. How fitting full circle, eh? Uh, well, listen, we appreciate you guys support. Sorry that, uh, Bruce wasn't able to record. If we're able to throw it down over the weekend, we'll try to get it up as soon as we can. Uh, but, uh, Hey man, a lot of moving parts these days, a lot of moving parts. Greatly appreciate your support here on something to wrestle. Hope you'll check out our YouTube channel and uh, follow us on social. And uh, we'll see you again real soon for another episode of something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard. But for now, here's some Royal rumble memories. Get you in the mood for next weekend. Talk to me about the way you guys put together this match. You know, we've talked a little bit about how Royal rumble matches are put together. We know that, uh, Andre, the giant's going to be here. I mean, literally everybody's in here. I mean, even Roberts and Piper have a little bit of a confrontation up front. I mean, all the big stars though, just a who's who in this one, but we know there's one spot in particular we're trying to build to talk to me about what you remember the way these were structured, who was the agent, how the guys knew what to do here and where and everywhere. The talent lineup is DiBiase, Coco, Marty Jannetty. Jake Roberts, Randy Savage, Roddy Piper, the warlord, Bret Hart, bad news. Brown, dusty Rhodes, Andre, the giant, red rooster, Axe, Haku, smash, Akeem, Jimmy Snuka, Dino Bravo, Canadian earthquake, Jim Neidhart, ultimate warrior, Rick Martell, Tito Santana, honky tonk man, Hulk Hogan, Shawn Michaels, the barbarian, Rick rude, Hercules, and the top heel, Mr. Perfect. He drew number 30. He comes in last. Chat me up. How is this put together? You know, the idea is you're supposed to have a new entrant every two minutes. Of course, that's not always the case. And we sort of get, we get a nickname to Titan time. DiBiase sets a new longevity record here. He goes 44 minutes, 47 seconds, quite the performance by him. He was mad at Virgil for drawing number one, but I mean, he puts on quite the show for himself. What do you remember about this one? Uh, hats off to Pat Patterson. This was this was a lot of Pat doing it on his own at this time, and this was you know we all had our tweaks to it, just little additions. But man, hats off to Pat Patterson. Um, his brainchild, him putting it together, and making sure all the stories were told. But as you go through it, the things that stick out: a DiBiase lasting as long as he did was positively just a, a great job on Ted's part, but every, when Ted finally got eliminated, holy fuck, did the place erupt because they followed it all the way through the, the little things of, you know, when Randy Savage came in and, and, and Jake, the snake and Roddy Piper working together. And I think it was Savage and, and perfect or whatever it was. No, it wasn't Savage and perfect, but it was the, the buildup all the way through uh, of the little nuanced spots. And, and then it was all to build to 
finally, and it wasn't backing up, bumping into each other. It was a very simple spot where everybody is finally eliminated, and there's Hulk and Warrior. And all it was was simple fucking tackles where nobody moves and a few shoves, and that's all you got. But it was enough that nobody sold anything. You know, the, the, the little shit that sticks out when Warrior hits the ring. And I think it was Barry Darso, uh, Demolition Smash, is pounding on his back, and Warrior's not selling a thing, doesn't even know he's there. Um, just just little things like that, that that you watch as you go on. Um, absolutely fucking superb. Royal Rumble from start to finish, all the, all the way through, ending up with Hulk and perfect at the end, where you're you're thinking, you know, and this was before the winner went on to WrestleMania. This was all about the Royal Rumble itself having that much prestige that winning that was like winning a championship, and it was a place where you could set things up for the future. And this set up Hulk and Warrior just perfectly. But again, there were so many beautiful spots, and and you and I were, like we said before, about doing a watch along. I, you need to watch this one without any interruption and just sink, let it sink in. Bret Hart, holy shit, Bret Hart coming out to an unbelievable pop, and then when you grab Bret, you watch Bret. He doesn't let him grab him, grab his arms all the way behind his back. He holds. It's just the shit made sense, and it was good. And with you know very few exceptions, I thought it was a damn near perfect Royal Rumble. Let me ask, because you said perfect Royal Rumble, perfect's there at the end. He's the last one to be eliminated. He's never lost a match. Was Perfect Hogan ever considered for WrestleMania? And and if not was perfect ever considered to win the Royal rumble. I mean, I know that, you know, Hogan must post pal. I get that. But the very first Royal rumble was Jim Duggan. Was he considered here? No. And th- this was all about trying to get to warrior and Hulk at mania, but the promotion leading up to it was all about Hulk and perfect. So you needed to transition that. And this was kind of in some ways, the blow off for Hulk and Kurt. That's weird that that's the blow off. I mean, you know, the first year it's, uh, it's Jim Duggan. The second year it's big John stud. The third year it's Hulk Hogan. It feels like it was quite a Delta to get to that point, but still Hogan must pose very iconic moment in this show too, uh, where uh, someone in the crowd has painted up a bed sheet that says Hulkamania will live forever. Hogan still has that bed sheet in his Hogan's beat shop in Florida. It's still displayed there, but it's really iconic, especially in this building because years later, the first mega pay-per-view for WCW is Flair Hogan. And it's in this same building and the, the, uh, sort of the mezzanine level, the way the lighting is, it's unmistakable for Orlando. And it's just weird that Orlando has been such a big part of Hulkamania for so long. And you guys couldn't have scripted that fan with the bed sheet any better. Could you? Sometimes the unscripted shit is the best. Three stars That's what makes it beautiful. Three stars is what it gets. We should mention that, uh, warrior has the most eliminations. He's got six. Nobody else is even close to him in that regard. DiBiase has three and everybody else is at two. So he's got three times what almost everybody else has. Um, 
Pope Warrior would throw out Santana at 47 minutes and six seconds. And then Shawn Michaels comes in. Hogan throws out Haku at 4804. Warrior dumps Michaels at 4807 and Martel at 4809. Meltzer would say, yes, Michaels, probably the most exciting worker in the Fed, worked a total of 15 seconds or so. This left the big thing, Warrior versus Hogan. They traded no-sell shoulder blocks, did a nice double clothesline spot, and then just laid there for 30 seconds, and that was it. Uh, Of course, we know that eventually uh, Warrior goes out at 52-35. He's tangled up with Barbarian and Rick Rude. Hogan goes to clothesline the two heels, but it's somehow Warrior who goes over. And at that point, he would say the crowd died down because they knew there would be no more Hogan Warrior. Uh, But still, a big reaction when Mr. Perfect takes the big head first bump and then goes over the top and Hogan's your winner. Meltzer would say as a live show, I'd say the thing was better than average. The crowd enthusiasm was as good as you could expect, given the longer than usual matches and short attention span of the fans. They were really into most of the stuff. Only Valentine Garvin and Doug and Bossman put them to sleep. Although the rumble, because it went almost an hour, had almost no actual wrestling and it did dragon spots. What they did with Hogan and Warrior was just about perfect. Still, I have to second guess some of the Royal Rumble booking since they put the guys the fans wanted to see in early so that the middle, which is where Hogan and Warrior were, was slow. The finish wasn't nearly as anticlimactic as last year. Compared with the Rumble last year, I'd say there was less actual good wrestling this year. However, last year the crowd wasn't as up, so the Rumble dragged a lot more, and the finish was totally anticlimactic because no one cared about stud. This year, keeping Hogan in until the end kept things from dying down, even when the winner was obvious. When it came time to uh, poll the readers of The Observer, we got 48.8% thumbs up. 31.9% 31.9% thumbs down, 18.8% thumbs in the middle. What say you? Thumbs up, thumbs down, thumbs in the middle. Two thumbs up. It's really kind of hard to argue, I guess. It was, uh, especially for me, because I just grew up loving this show in particular. Go out of your way to watch this one. The Rumble match is great fun. All those promos are great. The Brother Love segment right in the middle is great. Uh, and, you know, the reactions to some of these performers that you know, we sort of just dismiss in hindsight, man, we're just phenomenal. It just shows you how over the machine was with the fans at that point. Next up, we get a Hulk Hogan promo and let me, I guess we, we've talked about it before, but I want to mention it again when we're doing all the rumble pre-tapes, cause they are pre-tapes when you've got that many guys, one after another that's done in the afternoon, but this Hogan promo. This has to be live because he's mid promo and completely forgets Saddam Hussein's name. And he turns and looks at Mean Gene and says, You know who, brother? Sudan, Sudan Hussein. I mean, he's struggling, but it's live. He's talking about old Sudan Hussein that used to work Kansas City territory there. You know, Sean Bedford, he was Sudan Hussein. He worked that gimmick there and. In Kansas City, a little bit, you know, they did a little bit in Nevada too. You look a little like Sudan Hussein. You gonna tell me anything about the promo, or are we just gonna keep doing bubblegum shit here? No, it was like, no, dude, it was uh, what the fuck? It was live. I thought it was fucking great. It was goddamn. Uh, stereotypical Hulk Hogan excited telling us what the fuck was going to happen. And by God, everything's okay in America because he is American goddamn made. 
And when it comes crashing down and it hurts inside, what? You just, you know, every now and again, I get frustrated with your ass and then you totally redeem yourself with that shit. Let's get to the you rumble. Make a stand. You can't run and hide. <laughs> Cause he's a real goddamn American. Oh God. Fight for the rights of every man. Meltzer would write the immortal and shameful Even Hulk Sudan. Hogan throughout the charismatic earthquake to win the rumble and 65, 16. He says, this is the worst of the four rumbles thus far. They kept a lot of the guys in the ring for long periods of time, but unlike in other years, when guys like Kurt Henning, Brett Hart, or Shawn Michaels had their best working shoes on and carried the action for the non-workers. It seemed that everyone was just told to go out there and punch and kick and little was worked out. There are almost no high spots. Nobody took any kind of special bumps after being eliminated. Since Hogan was already told us he was going to win the rumble before the thing started by guaranteeing his victory for the troops abroad. <laughs> you know, that's actually kind of funny in hindsight. Can you imagine if he says, I dedicate this match to the troops over in Iraq, man. And then he goes out there and loses. Fuck. You can't do that. Right. Well, hell no. Cause this is a goddamn real American. I am a real American fight for the rights of every man. Was Pat on hiatus here? No, Pat was with us. Why was this rumble? Why did it look and feel different in execution than the others had? Um, I think more than anything is because we were worried about so much other shit. And, you know, you're watching everything else that's going on in the world and, and you're, you're just wondering about everything else under the sun. So when you're, you're focused on that, you know, Pat had to help with the damn warrior and savage stuff. And then you got to do all this. Um, it just wasn't. You know, we, we spent the weekend down there going over everything, but there were a lot of what ifs and there were, you know, there were plan A's and plan B's, but there was never a change in the match. There was never a change in the attraction, how we got to that attraction and what we might have done uh, before and after. There were different ways to approach it, but then we were in it. We were in it. And, uh, fucking declared war while we were in the middle of the rumble again, they could have just waited. Like, I mean, think about it. Um, you, the, the, the Royal rumbles over and you go to CNN and they're reporting on Hulk Hogan winning the Royal rumble. Sergeant slaughter is the new, uh, WWF champion. And Oh, by the way, Here's President Bush. You're uh you get to be ringside for this. I think this is the only time you were ringside for a Royal Rumble. You come out with the Undertaker. How was your experience that night? Well, he didn't listen to me, otherwise he would have won. <laughs> and if he'd only listened to me, then we'd have a he would have won that championship much sooner. I'm confident of that. You want uh, eventually the final three, you want to talk about a weird rumble. Normally we get down to a final four and everybody's like, Oh, what's it going to be? 
Well, the the final three here, Hogan earthquake, who, by the way, uh, they, they did big business with the prior SummerSlam and Brian knobs. How the fuck is Brian knobs? The third, the, what is this? Anybody could be it. Anybody could win it. Listen to you. It is the, the hurt, the earthquake stuff here feels like it goes a little long. Eventually they eliminate knobs as we mentioned, but Hulk is teasing. Hey, I'm going to body slam him. He goes for the body slam and he collapses. Uh, so quake squashes him a few times, but then he does a Superman come back a body slam and a clothesline over the top rope. It feels like the crowd was ready for it to end. Maybe it stretched a little too long. Meltzer gave it two and a quarter stars. <laughs> the crowd was definitely ready for it in. I think that the crowd, man, after the, the warrior match, they were, they were done. Yeah, I agree. Well, what, what'd you think of the rumble? You watched it back, uh, three weeks ago now and have clearly forgotten <laughs> that there were even other referees there, but what'd you think? Um, is this the payoff for, for Hulk quake here at the end? You know, we, we don't get more follow-ups after SummerSlam, except for this, is, it, is that sort of putting a bow on that feud? Maybe basically, I guess it's a nod to it. Get people would remember it, but I didn't think it, I didn't think it was that good. I just, I didn't, you know, I didn't think that this was one of those rumbles where we sat back and went, oh my God, it's nice to see Taker out there and get to see me go out there with Mark and all that and do, you know, little things, but, um, which by the way, Taker should have been the original diesel spot when I watched that and looked back on it. And he should have been the guy standing in that ring for about, you know, seven or eight people and just clear it. Until finally here comes Hogan or whoever the fuck, but it was okay. It just wasn't great. We had, we had one story to tell that night. You know, this is before it's sort of, uh, promoted as when the rumble get a title shot, but as it happens here, Hogan wins the rumble and gets a title shot at WrestleMania. When do you remember somebody saying, Hey, why don't we just make that part of the show? Uh, that was in October or November when I came back before, uh, WrestleMania nine. There you go. Is a way to get Yoko in there. And the original idea was, uh, I think I've told him before was Scott Steiner to bring Scott Steiner in as a single and holy shit, brand new guy. First time in the rumble, win it and go to WrestleMania. Man, I just love talking to you guys about chilly sleep. I am sleeping better than ever, and I know I'm enjoying a better quality of life, all because I get a good night's sleep. I got to give you guys a peek behind the curtain. A few years ago, pre-chilly sleep, I was sleeping like five, maybe six, sometimes seven, but very rarely seven hours a night. But that wasn't even continuous sleep. I was fussing with the covers, fighting with the pillows. I was up and down, tossing and turning. I was trying to get comfortable. I had a ceiling fan in my bedroom. I would crank down that AC. I would kick a leg out from underneath the covers. I was doing whatever I could to not be hot because I knew I slept better when I was cool. Well, it turns out I was right. Science tells us the best way to achieve and maintain consistent deep sleep is by lowering our core body temperature. You see, temperature controlled sleep prepares your muscles after a hard day's work and it improves your cognitive function. So you always start your day feeling sharp and alert. Now, Sleep Me is the new home for Chili Sleep. 
Sleep means bringing you the same great sleep that Chili Sleep offered, but under a new name. Chili Sleep makes the coldest and most comfortable sleep systems available. They create the environment that meets your body's natural need for lower core temperatures, promoting deep, more restorative sleep. Chili Sleep makes the Uller, the Cube, and the Doc Pro sleep system. All three are water-based, temperature-controlled mattress toppers. Let me explain. They fit over your existing mattress, and they provide you your ideal sleep temperature. These mattress pads keep your bed at the perfect temperature for deep sleep, cold sleep. You see, Sleep Me is designed to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and give you the confidence and energy to power through your day. I'm jealous of this. I've got the Uller, but they just launched the brand new Doc Pro sleep system. I can't wait to try it. It has two times more cold power than their other models. It's whisper quiet, and it has a tubeless mattress pad design that allows for five times more cooling contact. Why not pair it with the new sleep.me app? That's going to give you like uh, think of it as almost like a smart thermostat for your phone. My wife has her side of the bed automated. She wants to climb into a warm bed, but she wants to uh, drop that temperature as she starts to fall asleep. So she doesn't get all hot and sweaty and she gets that deep sleep. But then she has her side of the bed automatically set to warm her up, to wake her up. How about that for sleep scheduling? Head on over to sleep.me forward slash wrestle to learn more and save 25% off the purchase of any new Doc Pro, Cube, or Uller sleep system. This offer is available exclusively for something to wrestle with listeners, and it's only for a limited time, y'all. That's sleep, S L E E P dot M E slash wrestle to take advantage of our exclusive discounts and wake up feeling refreshed every day. Paul wants to know, in your opinion, is the post-match victory promo, the best Ric Flair promo of all time? <laughs> uh, I thought it was good. Um, I think there's a lot of Ric Flair promos that people can point to and say, God damn, that was good. But this one was definitely memorable. What's your favorite? Um, God, you know, I think I, I go back and listening to the whole buildup to Rick's last match. Some of those promos were absolutely classic and, and they, they had so much emotion to them because they were real and you felt it. Um, here's a fun one. The Mounties intercontinental title reign. Was it just a rib? Not a rib. Now Aaron wants to know, was there a year when it was highly considered slash almost happened that a not top guy was set to be the winner? And if so, who was it? No, because after this, when we, when we got to WrestleMania nine, uh, with the, the Royal rumble right before that, the fact that the winner would be in the main event at WrestleMania, we talked about doing unknown. And actually that first one, we talked about doing it with Scott Steiner. Um, but it had, it had to make sense to get us to WrestleMania. Um, let's talk about the poster one of the most iconic things ever david wants to know any stories on working with marvel comic artist joe jesco who drew the iconic early royal rumble posters just the the first one that he did was so damn good that vince loved it and we we went back for did we do it two years or three years in a row but we went back to it and that was one of the first times that vince ever went back to something like that how did you guys find him did, was he a fan and and pitched it or did somebody have the idea of having a comic book guy do it creative services reached out creative services had the concept and reached out to him to do it 
They were they're excellent. They're one of the few posters that I actually have up in my house. <laughs> Andres wants to know. Question won't be answered, but screw it. How big's Batista's dick? So Piper there with a nice uh, bite of Ric Flair's head. Jason and says Flair goes back to the eyes. Jason says when Hogan lost the match, the audience cheered, but when they replayed on TV, they dub in booze to make Sid a heel for doing it. How often does this happen? Any other instances you can think of besides every Roman Reigns entrance? What are y'all watching? I watched it on the network and I didn't hear. I mean, I heard the cheers. You see the people pop. And I heard cheers when Hogan got eliminated. So I, I think that that's, you know, for television and things, when we used to uh, tape things, we would definitely put in cheers and booze, okay, where they didn't exist before. But, man, I heard the cheers when Hogan got eliminated. So I, I don't know. Maybe y'all are watching some other feed. Dante can clear it up for us. He says, ask Bruce about the main event the following week, how they re-edited gorilla and, and Bobby's rumble dialogue to portray Sid as the villain. When it was clear that Hogan was the wrestler being booed at the rumbles conclusion, you can still watch both versions on the WWE network. And there's totally different commentary between the two. I have no idea. I wasn't there. Vladimir wants to know. What was the reaction in the business about Flair coming to New York with the big gold belt? I think most people were, I think most people thought it was work and most people thought it was, you know, kind of cooperation, but at the same time, it was like a, Ooh, shit. And it, it was a pretty damn big deal to those of us in the business. I was unemployed at the time or as Vince likes to say on hiatus, but I remember it vividly. Rashad wants to know what was Jack Tunney's non kayfabe role behind the scenes. Jack Tunney was the promoter in uh, Canada in Toronto and the area around Canada. Jesse wants to know why did all the best pay-per-views happen when Bruce was fired? SummerSlam 91 survivor series, 91 Royal rumble, 92 mania, eight SummerSlam 92. And then Bruce comes back and we get fucking survivor series, 92 womp, womp, womp. Yeah. Well, fuck you. That was pretty funny. How was mean Gene Okerlund behind the scenes? He seems to be a nice, quick-witted guy. He'd like to go out and have a few beers with. Gene is an absolute, uh, lot of fun to go out and have a few beer, beers with. And he is very quick-witted. Thank God for Sid Justice. Uh -huh. This Mother's Day and Father's Day, look no further for the perfect gift than PaintYourLife.com. It's worked for me every time. And when I say every time, I mean it. I've used paintyourlife.com to bring tears to the eyes of my mom, my dad, even my father-in-law. And right now I'm ordering one for my mother-in-law, all from paintyourlife.com. My mother-in-law's life is her dog, Missy. And this year, my wife and I knew exactly what to get my mother-in-law for Mother's Day, a painting of Missy. It really is that simple too. All we needed was a, a picture from our phone. Boom. We're up and running. You see, paintyourlife.com can really create a hand-painted portrait to fit almost any budget. And it's the perfect gift for your mother, your father, or both. I've used it, as I said, on almost every person in my life. I've given these to my wife. I've given it to my cousin, my mom, my dad, my father-in-law. If I'm looking to give a truly meaningful, personable gift, I know the paintyourlife.com has my back. And they're going to make it easy. You can go ahead and start the entire process in less than five minutes. And what's really cool about paintyourlife.com is they can even combine photos. 
Maybe you want to put two people who never met in one of your favorite vacation spots. You can do that. Just upload the photos. Bam. You're good to go. Maybe grandpa never got to meet his grandson. Paintyourlife.com. That can become a reality. You can put people and places together. Even if they've never been there, you pick the artist, you pick the medium. Do you want oil, acrylic, watercolor, charcoal? You can even go ahead and pick out an awesome frame. The whole process to get started, as I said, takes less than five minutes and you can actually get your painting in as little as two weeks, but you work hand in hand with the artist to get every detail. Perfect. If you're looking to get those waterworks going to have your mom or your dad tear that paper and just almost be overcome with emotion. That's what I got. And I've never gotten that reaction to a gift card. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. There's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now, as a limited time offer, get 20% off your painting. That's right, 20% off and free shipping. Now, to get this special offer, just text the word WRESTLE to 87204. That's WRESTLE to 87204. Text WRESTLE to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. Chris wants to know, was there ever any consideration here to turning Hogan heel? I have no idea. No, I mean, I probably not knowing Vince. I wasn't there guys. Michael wants to know what was it that Vince saw in flair differently than say a dusty or a Harley race or any other NWA legend to push him so quickly. It seems like a lot of those guys have to come in and quote unquote, pay their dues. Meanwhile, flair gets a mega push from the moment he comes in. I think Vince probably saw a lot of himself in Ric Flair. Uh, if Vince were to be a wrestler back in that time, he probably would have been Ric Flair. Jen says days before Shawn Michaels had one of the greatest heel turns of all time. The crowd reaction he got was mixed at best. And some people were cheering. Could anything have been done differently to capitalize on this? And what is probably the most second, most important pay-per-view of the year. Most of the crowd didn't even seem to be aware of the turn at the time. <laughs> yeah, do it earlier, but you know, that that's what you do. I mean, it, it, you bite that bullet and move on. Ryan wants to know who would have been Bruce's pick to win the rumble. Rick flair. Joe says, got any good Rene Goulet stories? Seems like he was there forever. Rene Goulet, I think the funniest one is when we were doing Doink the Clown and Rene. We had Doink the Clown up in the stands before we even knew he was who he was. And the kids kind of all got around Doink, and Doink had fallen down the stairs around all these kids. And Rene had a radio, and all we heard in his French accent was, The clown is down! The clown is down! The clown is down! And we just use that forever. Uh, hypothetically, what would it sound like if, uh, Johnny Ace was to do Bobby Heenan's not fair to flare? Well, it's not fair to flare. If you ask me, you know, it'd be fair is if Vince was in there and I was able to oil him up kind of like the warlord going out right now. Hogan and Savage are in the ring at the same time, but have zero physical interaction and stay completely away from each other. Do you think there was legit heat here by this point? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I don't think there was at this point at all. At least not that I knew of. 
Anthony wants to know how did Titan time work in the early years of the rumble when you were just using an arena scoreboard clock to count down? We didn't just use an arena scoreboard clock to count down. The only time that the arena scoreboard clock would come up is when there was 10 seconds left. And we decided when the 10 seconds was left. Eric, so it could be 90 seconds, two minutes, whatever we wanted. Eric says, I know you get this question a lot, but why didn't you guys put the title on Virgil? Well, you know, I, I have to go back and change my answer. Uh, person I would have put over in the Royal rumble, still Ric Flair. Aaron wants to know, hypothetically, what might it sound like if Roddy Piper sang with my baby tonight? Ha, oh, spend my days working hard on the goal, fella. Kind of like Bill Shatner doing the, some of those songs. Better manager, Mr. Fuji or Jimmy Hart? Different. They're just different. They're both great. Lou has a great question here. Why didn't Triple H win this rumble? You know, I'm beginning to wonder that myself. Uh, Chris writes rumor and innuendo says that Hogan freaked out at Vince backstage after the show. Did you ever hear about that? For what? I don't know. So you didn't I don't either. That? Okay. Um, David wants to know what did people think when flair said the WWF title was the only title in wrestling that mattered because it is, there you go. Michael says Rick Flair watched this with Conrad on the old Flair podcast and said jokingly when Greg Valentine got into the match, okay, everybody's going to get potatoed now. Out of all the guys in the Rumble, who was most notorious for being stiff in the ring? <laughs> wow, that's that's a lot of guys. Um, Valentine would be up there. Hercules, Duggan could be a little little snug sometimes because he's blind, but not out of maliciousness. Um, but there's a spot in there when you watch Valentine and flair in the corner with the chops where flair finally says enough with the chops and just turns and gets away from him. We're down to four. Now we've got Sid working with uh, macho man in one corner and on the far side, Hulk Hogan and Ric flair, arguably the top four. And there with a high knee to the back of Sid, it pushes macho man over the top. And now flares back to work with Hogan. We're down to three. The big three and see, and, and again, subliminal message there with Savage being dumped out by flair. So you can get to WrestleMania. Um, don't know if that's what they wanted, but Hey, it worked. Sid just watching as Hogan puts the boots to flair comes in behind him, throws Hogan out and look at the crowd and the crowd pops. They go banana. Everybody thought for sure Hogan's winning this and Hogan's world champ, but it doesn't happen. Sid talking a little smack to him which people liked. And I, again, it was different. And to me had Sid not been just gone as heel there with his facials and stuff. And they missed the shot of Hogan, you know, kind of grabbing there. But again, this to me is a total heel move on Hogan's part. hundred percent. But Hogan always worked as a heel. He did. This is true. But sometimes it's, it can be heel in a baby face way. And then there's just Dick move. And to me, that was a Dick move. How crazy is the finish here? I mean, I think it's one of the more underrated finishes. I know everybody talks about the match and the performance that Rick had, but really great stuff. When you see Piper and Martell go over and then Savage and then Hogan and then Sid, it couldn't have been done any better. 
And now Hogan's in chasing Ric Flair after he lost. Clearly, give the man yep. a minute to celebrate. You got to be fair to Flair. Well, they got to get they got to get Flair back for his promo. But also, you look at Rick, and his mouth is about as dry as dry can get, and he just wants water and air right now. But you don't even get the the reunion of Bobby Heenan and Flair, and now it's all you know again. You got a brand new champion. It's all about crowning a champion. And you got these two yahoos in the ring with Pat Patterson and sneakers trying to separate them. It does sort of diminish the the title a little bit. It shows people what the real main event's going to be right here at WrestleMania. Exactly. And, and it, you know, was Hogan was bigger than the championship. And now, you know, this whole thing was Sid, but people not letting them go at it at all. And Sid's not backing down at all. It just, again, man, it made, if Sid had just taken, backed up a little bit, it would have helped me with Sid being a heel, but he doesn't back up. Right. He stays there toe-to-toe, toe-to-toe with Hogan. So again, it's like, he's saying, come on, come on. (laughs) You know, it's who's the heel. Everything Sid's doing no matter how heelish you want to say it is, it's babyface in this situation to me. Brian wants to know, as far as Bruce knows, was anyone besides Flair ever considered? Um, I don't really know. Maybe Sid, but I have I have absolutely no idea who the hell they consider for this one. Paul writes, Do you think it was a mistake to turn Sid heel at this point? Between the ninety one Survivor series and this show, the crowd was obviously ready to cheer someone else besides Hogan. Yeah, and I think that they I think that it would have been the right move for Sid to be the babyface here, just at least for this run. I don't know that Sid for the long run would have been the right guy as a babyface, but right here it would have been, in my opinion. Chris wants to know, do you know how much it meant in real life for Piper to win a title? Was he just playing the part here or was he excited to actually have a belt? I think Roddy appreciated the nod. But he also knew he was an attraction and didn't need a belt. Michael wants to know any good Pat Tanaka stories. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Uh, Duke Mukasan, great bumper, but I don't really know. So let's watch here. Of course, we're not going to hear it, but it's a pretty famous presentation. We're going to see the winged Eagle championship being presented directly to Ric Flair by Jack Tunney. Mean Gene's here holding the stick. And at some point there's going to be a pretty famous moment that we get tons of questions about that people remember maybe more than almost anything in the promo where Mean Gene yells at someone off camera and yells, put that cigarette out. Do you have any, any idea? Classic. No, I don't. And that that's, you know, the funny thing is, is I was getting all of those tweets about that. And I didn't even realize it was this promo till I went back and saw it with a tear in my eye, the greatest moment of my life. The only title in the world that means you're number one. And then of course, Gene right here goes off camera and yells at someone to put that damn cigarette out. You gotta love it. And Bobby, and, you know, and, and to me, you know, Bobby and them, it all ends on Ric Flair and a, Woo! But absolutely classic stuff right here. And to me, this was, you know, this was Flair's greatest WWE moment. This in his retirement. One of the greatest promos of all time. You've got to go out of your way to see it. Um, 
I mean, it's a great match. Shyster writes in, what's the noise the fans are making during entrance? I never heard that cowbell noise before oh. or after this event. I'm not sure what makes that sound though. It's a, it's a, uh, it, it is actually a cowbell that people get and they, they rattle it at football games and they rattle it, especially down here in Texas. They were, they either have the spinner razor or they have a damn cowbell. And in the very beginning of this, it was aggravating as hell because it was all I heard. I thought it was the music, but you really hear it during the, uh, during the on cameras. And the other thing they do up in the Northeast a lot is they do the, the air horn, which is just aggravating as hell for TV. Uh, Jamie wants to know, did Bruce think we should have had a flair Hogan match at WrestleMania eight? Um, if they had done a personal issue with them and they'd actually shot an angle. Yes. Norris wants to know the Alliance of Flair, perfect and Heenan was one of the greatest units in wrestling to me. What were the plans for the unit? Had they not had to be split up due to the ultimate warrior leaving? I have no idea. Barry wants to know, is there anyone better in the business than Bobby Heenan putting people over at this show? Nope. He's the best in the business. He was absolutely the best. Uh, Joe wants to know, can Bruce explain to me what a Blumpkin is? Nope. Not going to. Uh, Jason wants to know, can you tell us any stories about Bobby traveling with Rick? <laughs> didn't last long because Bobby's liver couldn't take it. And, uh, Bobby couldn't take being out all night, drinking every night with Rick. And he had to get off the road. He just couldn't take it. Any Beverly Brothers stories or natural disaster stories you can share? No, the famous, you know, natural disaster story is just earthquake and Kenji Katao in Japan where earthquake just basically totally punked him out in his home country and bitch slapped him. Ladies and gentlemen, today's episode is brought to you by blue chew. We're coming to you from the blue chew studios and the nights are getting longer, but the breeze isn't the only thing that's getting stiff. Come on. You know, the deal guys, we all know confidence can take you far in life, but that's especially true in the bedroom when it's time to step up to the plate. And that's where blue chew comes in. Blue chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as both Viagra and Cialis, but in chewable form and at a fraction of the cost. Take these dudes anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead or be ready whenever an opportunity arises. Now, the process is simple, y'all. You'll sign up at bluechew.com. You'll consult with one of their licensed medical providers. And once you're approved, you'll receive your prescription within days. And here's the best part. It's all done online. That means no visits to the doctor's office. That means no awkward conversations. That means no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Bluetooth tablets are made right here in the USA, folks. And they prepare and ship directly to your door, all in a discreet package. So if you could benefit from extra confidence when it's time to perform, chew it and do it. Let's have some better sex, shall we? We've got a special deal for our listeners. Try Blue Chew free when you use our promo code WRESTLE at checkout. Just pay $5 shipping. That's BlueChew.com. The promo code is WRESTLE to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank Blue Chew for sponsoring today's podcast. And Bruce's winner. Uh, okay, let's get to the Royal Rumble match. Bret Hart and Luger uh, tie in the Royal Rumble after 55 minutes and 8 seconds. Uh, the time of the entries was said to be cut down from 2 minutes to a minute 30, but many were in the minute 40 range. Of course, this level of detail comes to us from the Wrestling Observer. Uh, Scott Steiner opens up with Samu as the first two entrants. 
And just as Samu has Scott almost over the top, it's Rick Steiner's time to come in, which is kind of interesting because it's the inverse of what you got with the war games. Instead of two heels working on one baby face, it's about to be two faces working on a heel, which is right on time because Scott is nearly eliminated. Uh, but Rick, um, just walked to the ring very slowly and didn't run in to save his brother. Uh, he instead takes time to shake people's hands and take his time. Uh, I found that kind of odd. Well, the original, original, original idea was to start with Scott and Rick against each other. It goes back to God damn pal. Brothers don't fight. So they didn't say they didn't want to do it. Vince didn't want to do it. Vince didn't want to do it, but we eased into it. If they're not one and two. Yeah. Yeah. You can get there. Okay. If they're in there at the same time, then they're competing. I'm sitting there thinking, what the fuck is the difference? Kind of a fun, uh, exit for Samu. Uh, he, uh, chokes himself on the ropes on the way out, which is kind of fun. Um, for who? Well, I'm just, that's a fun visual for me as a fan. I don't want to actually be choked by the ropes, but it's a cool visual. Is it not? It's a cool visual. Uh, Quang was entrant number four. Uh, Owen Hart was number five and Bart Gunn was number six. Uh, then diesel would come in at number seven and diesel would uh, go on to eliminate seven folks, uh, including, uh, Quang and Bart and Owen. Um, he would also eliminate number eight, which is Bob Backlund number nine, which is Billy Gunn and 10, which is Virgil. And we got lots of tweets about the, uh, the elbows that diesel was throwing at Virgil here. That seemed like they were, woo. They were a little snug, but I didn't think they were out of line in any way, shape, or form. What did you think of Diesel's performance here in the Rumble? And, and I'm only, I'm not asking that. I know some people are going to say I'm shitting on Kevin, but the reason I'm singling him out is it seems as if the the Titan style of booking the Rumble for a long time has been you you make Roman look strong. I mean, you got to get somebody over strong and with a lot of eliminations, whether it's Kane or it's Roman or it's Diesel. Well, this year it was Diesel. Uh, we talked about the 97 Royal Rumble before. It's in our archives. Well, that was clearly Steve Austin's time to shine. Well, here, Diesel has seven eliminations, so he's certainly kind of the featured guy in this match. Is that fair to say? Without a doubt. I thought that he looked great in it. I thought it helped establish that Diesel character and brought him into his own. Uh, he would eventually be eliminated um, after 17 minutes and 41 seconds, but it would take Mabel, Bam Bam Bigelow, Sparky Plug, Shawn Michaels, and Crush to get him out. So uh, quite a push for him here in the match. Uh, Randy Savage would come in at number 11. He would be eliminated by Crush, and that furthered uh, their feud, which would obviously culminate in a WrestleMania 10 match. Oh, don't uh, remind me. Jeff Jarrett uh, would be number 12. He would eliminate. Uh, he would be eliminated by Randy Savage. Spend my days working hard on the go, but the hands on the clock keep spinning too slow. I can't wait to be alone with my baby tonight. Let's be real. You knew that song was coming, so at least we got it out of the way. Uh, number 13 was Crush. He would be eliminated by Lex Luger, Sparky Plug, Bret Hart, and Bam Bam Bigelow. Shuckabra. Uh, number 14 is Doink the Clown. He would be eliminated by Bam Bam Bigelow. Who was playing Doink at this point? That would be Ray Apollo. Uh, what might we know Ray Apollo from besides Doink? You wouldn't. Okay. Uh, number 15 was Bam Bam Bigelow. He was eliminated by Lex Luger. Number 16 was Mabel, uh, and Mabel was eliminated 
Uh, after roughly 10 minutes by Greg Valentine, Tataka, The Great Kabuki, Crush, Bam Bam Bigelow, Sparky Plug, and Shawn Michaels. So it took a whole team of folks to get him out. Uh, number 17 was Sparky Plug, and he was eliminated after 21 minutes. So a great debut uh, for Sparky Plug here. Uh, he would be eliminated by Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. Uh, number 18 would be Shawn Michaels. He would be eliminated by Lex Luger after 29 minutes. So another really nice performance from Shawn in the Rumble. Uh, number 19 would be Mo, a guy we haven't ever talked about here on the show as far as I know. And believe it or not, he made it 22 minutes and managed to eliminate no one before being eliminated by Fatu himself. Uh, any stories about Mo you want to touch on or just circle back to him when we're talking SummerSlam or something else? Yeah, we'll circle back. Uh, Greg the Hammer Valentine was number 20. He was eliminated by Rick Martel. He had a long run as well, running about 20 minutes. Uh, Tataka was number 21. He was eliminated by Bam Bam Bigelow after 20 minutes. The Great Kabuki was in at number 22. He lasted all of two minutes and 46 seconds before Lex Luger threw him out. Nothing like a 16-hour trip from Japan. But he was he was involved in the Undertaker match. So. Yeah. Kabuki. Kabuki. Uh, Lex Luger uh, would be entrant number 23, and as we all know, he would be co-winner. He made it 21 minutes and 58 seconds. Uh, number 24 was Tenru, and he was eliminated by both Bret Hart and Lex Luger. Was there some sort of agreement amongst these Japanese stars when they're coming in? Hey, we're going to get eliminated by the guys who win it, the headliners? No. Okay. It just seems like to me, if they're going to be thrown out and they're coming over and doing a favor, they should be thrown out by the tippy top. No. All right. Um, 25 is Bastion Booger. He was unable to compete. 20. So there was 29 guys in this. I'm just mentioning not 30. Uh, 26 is Rick Martell. Uh, and he would be eliminated by Tatanka after 11 minutes. Uh, Bret Hart would make it 15 minutes at number 27 before, before being co-winner. Uh, number 28 was Fatu. He was eliminated by Bret Hart. Number 29 is Marty Jannetty. He was eliminated by Shawn Michaels. And then number 30, the coveted number 30 spot was Adam Baum. He, too, was eliminated by Lex Luger. Um, Luger had six eliminations in the match. Brett had four. Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow had five. Uh, the big winner, of course, though, is Diesel. Diesel had seven uh, folks that he eliminated uh, anything stand out to you in particular about this uh, match and the way it was built up? No, it was it was pretty much built up for that one purpose. Obviously, Brett came out late, you know, with the injury, with the injured knee from earlier on in the night. So people didn't know if Brett was going to make it. Will Brett Hart actually be in the Rumble match itself? And then Brett came out, Spirit of seventy six, for lack of a better term, to come out and be one of the last two people in the match. So it was a good story throughout the entire night from the tag team match with Brett Nowen to Brett. Is he going to make it? Is he not going to make it to actually being one of the winners? Um, because I, and, and again, to the, to the people that, that read and call out in California uh, and critique everything and choose not to find any joy in anything that they would <laughs> look at Brett and Owen earlier in the night and taking Brett out on the stretchers. Oh, well, that's how they're going to get Luger over uh, in the Rumble. Uh, with the way Diesel eliminates uh, Bob Backlund, 
uh, because Backlund was a firm heel here. Doesn't it start to tease that Diesel's going to be a babyface here? Or when do you think the, the Diesel babyface turn really starts, if not here? This wasn't so much. Turn your mic on. It'll be more helpful. This wasn't so much the turn of Diesel or even experimenting with that. This was more the experimenting of seeing how Diesel would be as a single. Okay. So that there was really not even any foreshadowing or really any thought at that point of Diesel being a babyface even. Who was an advocate for Diesel? In my head, that's a Vince guy. I think we all were at the time. Okay. Big, good-looking guy, and we wanted to, again, it's an opportunity that you can gauge the crowd reaction to somebody by putting them in in the ring with a lot of different people and a lot of different stars, see how the crowd reacts to them, whether they buy them or not. And that kind of tells you, well, shit, this guy might be able to spin off on his own and do okay. Uh, So let's run through briefly, um, you know, when we're talking about the finish of this match, Bret Hart and Lex Luger are going to tie. That can't be a simple thing to kind of get right. And it seems as if maybe purposefully there weren't tons of shots of them landing because you wanted to make sure that nobody could poke holes in it necessarily. Uh, Talk us through how a finish for a tie like that happens and what the strategy about the way it's shot might have been. Well, a couple things. It it can be it can be very easy and it can be very difficult depending upon the talent that you have in there. And by putting a guy like Bret Hart in there, putting a guy like Shawn Michaels in there, I think you feel a whole lot more confident and comfortable with them being in control of a situation like that. In this one in particular, Bret Hart was in complete control. So Bret was in control of his body, he was in control of Luger's body. And we knew that it was going to be on the money. The way that it was shot was purposefully, folks. No, we didn't screw up. And what shitty cameraman and what shitty director we have. For once, purposely, Kerwin had horrible shots. The shots were made to look so that you never actually really saw the... And that happens all the time in football and other sports that have replays. You you can't tell it from every angle. But what we also had was we had someone in the crowd on the opposite the hard camera side with a little camera that shot it so that we had it clean. If it worked. If it worked. And then we we also had it clean on other cameras. But the ones that we used and showed... Every one of them were obstructed just at the right angle so that you can go, oh, Brett's a hit. Brett, Brett, Brett hit first on this one or on this other one. It's like Luger hit first on that one. So you had the illusion both sides that the other guy won. How many times? Y'all have to practice this. You don't just do it live. Before the show, y'all. Brett, Brett and Luger, I think, went over it a couple times earlier in the day. I mean, as far as with directors and the shots, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you got to. But this would have been something you do at the event. Yes. Okay. Day of. Uh, a few more notes uh, from the Observer from the February 14th edition. Um, the latest estimates for the Royal Rumble at that time were that it did about 205,000 buys, which would be uh, a 0.9 buy rate which would estimate to a $2.3 million Titan gross. And that appeared to be up slightly from Survivor Series, but still down significantly than any other Titan pay-per-view in history. 
that would represent a 25% buy rate drop as compared to the year prior, the 93 Royal Rumble. Uh, so even with the increase in television viewership uh, and really strong showings for the Monday Night Raw ratings, it didn't translate into more people attending the house shows or purchasing the pay-per-view events. By comparison, the 93 Rumble drew 16,000 folks for a $187,000 gate, and it did a 1.2 buy rate for a $2.8 million gross. Uh, those numbers again for the 94 Rumble were 14,500 folks in a sellout for a $160,000 gate for a 0.9 buy rate and roughly $2.3 million in gross. Would you classify the 94 Rumble as a success for the WWF, or would you call it a disappointment? That's always disappointment when you do less than what you've done previously. Right. And business at that time was on the downturn. So it was, man, we were fighting and scrapping for everything that we could get. And we were going into the 10th anniversary of WrestleMania. So we were looking for some good momentum to get us there. And thank God we did it in the garden and in New York. Because I dare say that anything that we would do there would would do good business for a big event like WrestleMania. But business was rough all over. So at, at this time, to do a sellout <laughs> live, we were happy for. But at the end of the day, you just got to look yourself in the mirror and say that maybe the product that we presented and the card that we presented, hey, just not as many people want to see it. That's on us. Uh, overall, what did you think of the show? Overall, I like the show because you remember the finish. You remember the last the last thing you see, and I thought it was an intriguing finish and one that hopefully would get people interested and make them want to tune in the next night and also hopefully tune in and buy WrestleMania. I liked it. Um, I enjoyed the theatrics with The Undertaker. That's me. Some people obviously didn't. Let's get going here on the Royal Rumble. Number one, Shawn Michaels. Of course, he's going to uh, win this one. He's going to last longer than anybody. And he's going to have the most eliminations. Eight here. Uh, the British Bulldog is out next. And uh, he's going to be there at the very end, too. So he's going to last almost as long as Shawn Michaels. Just one second less, of course. Next up, we've got Eli Blue. Uh, who we've talked about a little bit under different names. You remember the Harris brothers and then Duke, the dumpster Drose. haven't spent a lot of time talking about him. He comes in at number four. What do you remember about old Duke? Nice guy. And that was about it. Uh, you know, Oh, Mike Drosey was, uh, probably too nice for this business. And he was the kind of guy that would, would believe everything anybody would tell him. And it just, he, he super nice guy, but it just, I don't think he was meant for the business. I think he's uh, in Tennessee these days. Let's keep it moving. Let's talk about. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything wherever you listen. Next up, another guy we don't talk about a lot. Number five, Jimmy Del Rey. And this is, uh, well, he had an interesting, an interesting run in the company to say the least. We lost him, gosh, six or seven years ago. I think he, uh, suffered a heart attack while he was driving and unfortunately passed away, but he had an interesting end to his run here with the company. I think a lot of fans remember him as, as being a, a big part of Smoky mountain wrestling, but he was involved with the world wrestling federation as well. What do you remember? Uh, yeah, it was one half of the heavenly bodies with Tom and he was Jimmy Backlund. He, he had worked in Florida, but I, you know, I didn't know much about him before he came in. He was kind of one of those unknown guys that got into a spot and had a, you know, his 15 minutes of fame, but you know, not a lot after he left and, was just kind of one of those journeymen that came through and had a little bit of a run and moved on. If you haven't, you need to go out of your way to see, uh, Kevin Nash, tell the story of Jimmy Del Rey's final incident with the company. Do you remember hearing about that? The quote unquote helter skelter where allegedly he, uh, laid with a lady who may or may not have been on her period and. Maybe. Oh God, I don't need to hear that <laughs> shit. Man, what the fuck? I think he, uh, allegedly he put some housey on. Oh God. No, 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 <laughs> What the fuck? Uh, coming up next, we've got who we know as the barbarian, but you guys had decided to call him something different here at number six. Why are you changing the barbarian's name? By the way, it's his real first name, but why? He was Sione. <laughs> I know. I really don't know. I I, yeah, I heard that. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. It's fucking Barb. I I dumbfounded for an answer there. Next up, Doctor Tom Pritchard, who we know is almost universally loved. Uh, number eight, Doink the Clown. Number seven, and we've thought about this for a long Quang. time. Quang. I think it's Kong. No, it's not Quang. You're going Quang. He's in Alabama. Call him Quang. Well, I mean, some people call him TNT. I know him as Savio Vega. He's in at number nine. Then Rick Martell, which seems like uh, from another era. Then Owen Hart in at number 11. At number 12, Timothy Well. I don't know when we're going to talk about him again. We lost him, gosh, just a couple of years ago. Went away way too early. Passing away at the very young age of 55. We knew him as Rex King. We knew him as Timothy. Well, he's part of well done. My goodness. What do you remember about this? Oh boy. Rex was up there on the paranoid meter. Um, I think that if he would have gotten out of his own way that he, I don't know. He did all right. It just was, there's, there's some guys that, that are meant to fill out the card and Rex was one of those guys who was meant to fill out the card. 
it wasn't a lot of personality there or not a special look or anything else, but he could definitely go when the bell rang. Next up at number 13, we've got Bushwhacker Luke. He's only going to be in here 12 seconds. He's in and out. Uh, I guess it's worth mentioning. Owen Hart was out in three seconds. Uh, Timothy. Well, he's out in 23 seconds. Uh, Bushwhacker Luke. He's out in 12 seconds. And then Jacob blue. He's out in 17 seconds at number 14. King Kong Bundy comes in at number 15. Mo is in at number 16. What's your favorite Mo match? I definitely say this one. I did a great job. Yeah, I could have could have done a little less time, but yeah, three seconds is what it did here. Yeah, number seventeen, it's uh, Mabel. Number eighteen, Bushwhacker Butch. Number nineteen, it's Lex Luger. Number twenty, your favorite and mine, Mantar. Mm-hmm. You believe he's he he had hooves? I just want to remind everybody. That Mantar right now, as we speak, is just two years younger than Chris Jericho. Yeah, he was a youngster. I'm just saying. Hell of an amateur, too. Mantar could be your your champion real soon. 21, Aldo Montoya. 22, and giant of a man, Henry O'Godwin. 23, another giant of a man, Billy Gunn. 24, Bart Gunn. 25, Bob Backlund to a big pop. 26, Stephen Dunn. 27, Dick Murdoch. What in the world? I can't believe Dick Murdoch was in this. Of course, we know Dick would only live another 18 months or so. He passed away in June of 96, but I don't remember him ever being here. And here he was. How does this come to be? Well, the entrance for the Royal Rumble that went out uh, worldwide and Dick got his entry fee in early to be a participant in the Royal Rumble. So he uh, was one of the lucky ones that, that made it through the application process. And threw a fucking drop kick in the match. Serious business. Who pushed for Murdoch to be on the we all, you know, we would always look for that outside guy, you know, one or two that you're like, what the fuck? And Dick was our, what the fuck this year? I think that Dick had called or somebody had had a conversation with him at some point and <laughs> going, what about Dick Murdoch? Great. See if he's available. It is like crazy to think that he was involved in this like and one of the last ones in yeah, the ring yeah i mean you would think it would have been somewhere else but it wasn't it's just i don't know interesting to me and hey the year hey, before he and butch reed were over in florida no argument for me the year before you guys did something similar when you had tinru and the great kabuki in there which kabuki. which really just an Aaron boy kabuki but you got, uh, the next year you've got like squat teamer number one and squat teamer number two, of course the headhunters just, and then Dory Funk was in that one. And yeah, you guys were doing some weird stuff during the rumbles back here. 28 Adam bomb, 29 Fatu, who we know is going to go on to be Rikishi 
And uh, number 30, Crush. So we got both Brian Clark and Brian Adams here. You know, not the most star-studded affair, but they did a good job with it. Of course, the uh, the finish comes down to an interesting moment here. Um, we've got Crush sort of pressing Shawn Michaels over his head, sort of Ric Flair Sting style, but he does a couple of reps with him. But Sean lands in the ring and then Davy boy clotheslines crush over the top. Michaels is putting on a show, taking some bumps for Davy boy. Eventually Davy boy clotheslines Sean Michaels over and it looks like he's eliminated, but Sean's holding on to the top rope with one hand, the middle rope with the other, only one to one foot touches the floor. They've got the camera set up perfectly on either side. And two referees notice and indicate that only one foot has hit the floor. Eventually bulldog thinks he's won the thing. They cue his music. His music starts playing. He goes to the middle rope camera side to celebrate. We've got a tight shot on him. And then out of nowhere, Sean hits him with the old ax handle in the back. Davy boy tumbles out. Then the bell rings and the referees are trying to raise Sean's hand. And let everybody know that the winner, because only one foot touched, is Shawn Michaels. And they're careful on the original showing to not air a clean shot of Shawn landing in case it wasn't perfect. But he did it perfectly. Only had one foot there. Three and a half stars. What did you think of the match? What did you think of the finish? Uh, Actually, you know, I been reading on Twitter and a lot of the tweets and it, and it felt like people thought this was like the worst rumble match ever. I thought it was damn good. It told a great story of Sean and Davy boy all the way through. We integrated the stories with Brett and Owen and Backlund and all that other shit within the match. And all the way through, you have the consistent story of is Sean Michaels going to last till the end is Davy boy Smith going to last to the end. And the first two guys that start the damn thing ended the damn thing. And it was just masterfully done in, in my opinion. And, and yes, I'm, I'm prejudiced. Put it together with Patrick. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely prejudiced and I have a little bit of pride of authorship there, but it was just done to perfection. And, and Sean, it was Sean's idea for the one foot. Uh, he was like, Hey, both feet have to have to hit. What happens if only one one hits? So we'll both have to hit. And he had this crazy idea. It's, Man, if you touch, we're fucked. And we figured out how to shoot it and, and make sure that we weren't going to get caught live. But he, you know, he was like, I ain't going to touch. Trust me. I'm going to come close. But I ain't going to touch. And he never did. And the, just that story, Davy, Davy thought he won, man. It's all the celebration and, and that fucker's still hanging on and ugh, shit. It just felt really good. And going back all these years later and, and watching it, knowing very few people knew, you know, we even started Bulldog's music when Bulldog, you know, went over and the referee, the one referee inside, you know, raised Bulldog's hand. We hit his music like it was a mistake. 
And, oh, my God, Bulldog won. Everybody thought, wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> you know, the referee's outside. Only once touched. Um, great story. It was a great story. Very well done. Uh, we should mention Shawn Michaels had been out of action uh, for a little while leading up to this rumble because he had two pins put in his hand. And this rumble match marks his return to TV. Uh, but he was working some house shows here and there on the way here. Let's, uh, let's keep rolling here. Let's talk about the rumble match itself. We're not closing the show with the rumble. We're closing with the championship, man. There's uh, a lot of interesting stuff happening in this rumble. And I got to tell you, I didn't remember half of the participants that were sort of surprises ever even being in a rumble until I watched it back. But we got Hunter Hurst coming in. Number one, Henry O'Godwin comes in. Number two. Backlund three, um, Jerry Lawler comes in number four. Lawler stays a long time too, 36 minutes and two seconds. It feels like a lot of times Lawler's in ring stuff was almost dismissed once his feud with, with Brett was over, at least in my opinion. Um, but he's here for over half an hour. Are you guys thinking about maybe doing something different or was just, just, you know, it is what it is. We know he can do it. So go have fun. Well, he wasn't in it the whole time either, and he was able to hide under the ring, and it was a good story that the king was trying to outsmart people and you know, get in and out and be seen, and I, I just thought it was a good story for Jerry, and it was a, a little bit of a let-up in the rumble itself. It's great let-up, but I guess normally when you see somebody do that, like, and again, I know we don't talk about current stuff, but we just saw Randy Orton do something like that in the more recent rumble, but they usually mean, that usually means, hey, they're going to do something moving up the card and it feels like he's mostly going to be an announcer after this, but it is really well done. Hey, Jerry Lawler. Yeah. Okay. There you go. I mean, one of the all time greats on a lot of yes. people's Mount Rushmore next up, Bob Holly. He gets in there for 39 minutes and 35 seconds. Uh, King Mabel is out next. Then Jake Roberts. And then check this one out. Dory Funk jr. He's in there 10 minutes and 53 seconds. You've often talked about him as being one of your all-time favorites. Is Dory being in this rumble a Bruce call? I, well, I think I did make the call as a matter of fact to Dory. And it was during the time that we would often reach out to some old timers and guys who had never uh, competed. Junior, of course, had competed previously as Hoss Funk in the WWF at the time. Um, but Junior was someone that, why not? He was out there with a little bit of nostalgia, and I got to see my hero in the Royal Rumble. That's pretty cool. Let's uh, let's talk about the next uh, uh, person in the ring here. It's Yokozuna, uh, and he's going to go 19 minutes and 14 seconds. Then the one, two, three kid comes out, and then we get a Japanese competitor. And boy, I'm going to butcher his name, Omori. Uh, well, how does this come to be? Uh, I, I don't remember us ever even having a conversation about him being in the rumble here. Yeah. I don't think anybody else has ever had a conversation about him being in the rumble either. I think this was, this was one of those, you know, JJ, JJ Dillon during the time that we were, uh, I don't know that we had gotten to the point of Tenru's company yet, but JJ, you know, often working with Sato and trying to work with different uh, folks. Yeah. 
Yeah, and, and or you, for all I know, shit, it, it also could have been Dory Jr. saying, hey, we got this got this guy from all Japan. But um, it was, yeah, nobody else really remembers. I sure as hell didn't. I was like, what the fuck? He's only in there for two minutes and 48 seconds. Hunter and Jake eliminate him. He had zero eliminations. Oh, I guess we should mention Dory Funk Jr. also had zero eliminations, but he's in there nearly 11 minutes, 10 minutes and 53 seconds. Uh, after him, it's Savio Vega and then Vader. Vader has four eliminations in just 11 minutes, but then three in a row that are kind of interesting. Doug Gilbert is zero, uh, you know, eliminations. He's in there just under three minutes, but you talk about a, a Memphis staple, Doug Gilbert. How in the world does he get the nod? Well, you know, Doug, um, Doug and I were friends, uh, Doug had, you're the brother of Eddie Gilbert. Doug was good Lord, obviously much younger at the time. And I had, uh, worked with Doug while I was at the global wrestling federation when Eddie was booking there. So it was, Hey man, uh, we were often looking for different names and people, the independent scene. It was a little bit different then. it was promotions in the South and Doug was working in Tennessee at the time. Um, people go, what the fuck, uh, Doug Gilbert. And I didn't think that Doug would embarrass himself or me or anybody else and thought it was, why not? Is this before or after he went way off script on Memphis TV? This has to be before. Oh, this was way before. Yes, man. That was something else. Um, okay. So let's keep it going here. Talk about who's next because we've already touched on him a little bit, but I do think it's worth mentioning again. We get headhunter number one and headhunter number two. <laughs> I guess we're calling them squatter one and squat squat team or two squat team. What did you call them, Bruce? I call them damn headhunters. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody does. Uh, by the way, as we mentioned, they're not in there very long. One seventy one seconds. Uh, once twenty four seconds. Then Owen combined. Combined. That's like seven minutes. Two fucking minutes, man. Yeah. Owen Hart's in there next. Get into the seconds ideas because that's in the fucking three digits. Oh, of course. Okay. Uh, Owen Hart goes twenty minutes, forty three seconds. And then Shawn Michaels. He's ultimately going to win, as we know. He's in there twenty six minutes total. He has eight eliminations, which is the most of anyone. Although Hunter is actually the Iron Man, and he lasts longer than anyone. <laughs> uh, Kushi is next. Uh, he's only in there for one fifty three, and then <laughs> Tatanka. Boy, Tatanka. <laughs> Tatanka. He, he wrestles his last match for the company on TV, March 19th, 1996. You want to tell us about uh, Tatanka? I love Tatanka. I thought it was a. Uh, I thought he had a hell of a, hell of a little run there. And uh... No, no, no. You've teased the story a few times where there was this big discussion about bringing Tatanka back. That was years later. Oh God. And you're like, Oh, it's a whole story. So not today. Oh God damn. Yeah. No, that, that no, Okay. probably not. I don't know if I could ever tell that story, but that was, uh, what does tell him when you get fired again? No, no, because it would, it would be, I think that it's the folks that were represented in that story. Uh, do not represent the people they were representing. 
if that makes any sense at all. I understand. And the the Native American people that have worked so hard and you know, when you, you look at it that somebody came over here and basically stole their land and and took it from them, uh, as JBL said with a, you know, bag of bag of beads and some pot, um it's like, come on, man. Uh and it was it was a shame some of the people that we had to that we were that we worked with at the time because that that presented themselves as something that they weren't, and uh, that's all. It just uh, I, I have so much respect. Jerry Briscoe's a Native American, and it's Gerald is, is so proud, and, and it's one of those that you just you don't want to touch. And it was like, God damn, man, it was it was craziness. But not during this time. I love to talk it. I love to talk of then too. And now you love to talk of then now forever. Actually, I did. I saw him recently gave him a big hug. It hadn't changed a bit. Next up, a guy who has changed a little bit, Aldo Montoya or Aldo Montoya. How about this? He won't be for long. A minute and 52 seconds, zero eliminations. Then diesel big daddy cool comes in at number 22. He's in for 1751 with five eliminations. Comma is in after him. Uh, he's also in for 15, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did you know that uh, it was Big Daddy Cool time to come out, Diesel? Because. <laughs> Tell me about. Big horn. <laughs> right? I love you for that. Uh, it was t- an opportunity. It was there. I've been trying to figure out a way without doing it, hitting the button, fucking that up again. You know me and technology. Tell me about uh, Kama. He-, he leaves after this match. Um, I, I've always thought this is sort of an interesting story. He's taken off television in the fall of 95. And after an appearance here at the 96 rumble, he's gone. And shortly after leaving, according to the rumor in innuendo, he had a verbal contract or he verbally agreed to join WCW as the enforcer for the NWO, but then never hears from him again. And then sees, wait a minute, Virgil's there. Uh, and it's not too terribly long and he's back with you guys in 1997. I think the original plan was for him to be Papa Shango, but then they decide we're going to have him join the nation of domination, but this is it for him. And, and in this era, he's working the Supreme fighting machine look. And this is also a time when ultimate fighting and MMA and no holds barred. It's like a buzzword. Chat me up about what happened with him and, and why he was gone after the company or from the company after this show. The gimmick, uh, comma, the Supreme fighting machine, it just didn't, it just didn't work. Um, I don't know if people didn't believe it. It just didn't click. It didn't work. And um, nobody, nobody bought it. It just wasn't, just wasn't a good gimmick in my opinion for him. And I was prejudiced. I, and here's the funny thing, man. I never, with the exception, very, very little. I didn't get to work with Papa Shango that much. That Papa Shango run was after I'd left the company. Um, and But I was always just amazed at the Papa Shango gimmick. And I thought there was so much more to that um, that they could have done with Papa Shango, the gimmick, um, I would have gone a lot further than they went just saying, um, 
and I just was always intrigued by, by that gimmick. Next up, we've got the ringmaster. That's right. Stone cold. Steve Austin has his first rumble. Of course, the following year, he's going to set the woods on fire, win the damn thing. But this is his first appearance here. He's using the ringmaster. He's uh, got the blonde hair. He's a ring technician. He's a part of million dollar man, Ted DiBiase stable. And you even hear Vince McMahon call him Steve Austin known as the ringmaster. And Meltzer would say it was amazing to see the physical difference in Austin compared with just a few weeks ago in ECW. And I'm sure Dave has some inference there. Maybe I shouldn't say I'm sure it reads like he does, but I think it's understood that a ECW was using tapes and B you're damn right. When you're going to make a big shot on a big pay-per-view for the big company, you're not going out there soft. If you can help it, you're going to do everything you can to dial it in. Right. Well, I thought Steve came in in great shape and, and looked tremendous. I don't know what Dave's referring to no. maybe in his lifestyle. I don't know. No, he, he's saying the same thing you are. He's just saying he didn't look that way. Anyway, Barry Horowitz is out next. That's where we are in the WWE here. Barry Horowitz is number 24. Barry was fucking over. I'm not arguing that he just beat, okay. he just beat skip. That's right. Uh, next up is Fatu. And then your boy, Isaac Yankum DDS. He's in at number 27. Boy, there's some regrettable shit in here. Uh, next up is Marty Jannetty. He's only here for two minutes and 35 seconds before the bulldog dumps him out. Speaking of the bulldog, he's in next at number 29 and last is Duke, the dumpster Drose, And, uh, he's in for one minute and 10 seconds. Uh, somebody else I want to mention King Mabel. He's gone until 1998 after this show. Why was it time for Mabel to go learn a new hold after this show? I think it was just time. I think that we had done everything at that point that we could do with Mabel. And in addition to that, you know, some of the injuries that were, you know, caused with Mabel being on the other end that probably hastened that decision a little bit. And yeah, it was, it was just time more than anything. We haven't talked a lot about the commentary on this show, uh, but the interviewers here are doc Hendricks and Todd Pettengill. The ring announcer, of course, is Howard Finkel, but on commentary, it's Vince McMahon and Mr. Perfect. How'd you think perfect did as a companion for Vince? In the early years, I thought perfect was great on color commentary. And when we brought Kurt back, I think that, I don't know. I, I, I just don't think that Kurt was, was there, uh, as good as he was in the earlier years doing color. Um, I don't know if it was because, well, he'd had another run in the ring and now he's back commentary. There, there were just a lot of factors that were going on. And the Mr. Perfect that had done the commentary originally when he came in the first time, I just thought he was much better at that time. Let's talk a little bit about. Steve Austin again, and then we'll get into the finals of the match, but there's rumor in any window out there that Steve Austin was accidentally eliminated. Now I know that sounds crazy, but he's supposedly accidentally eliminated because he slips on the rope and falls out while he's doing a spot Wi-Fi two. So he's legitimately out, but he was supposed to be in the final four. Do you believe that to be the truth? That could happen. I, I really don't. I don't remember that uh, specifically, 
but I could definitely see it happening. Yes. I, I always liked it when um, guys would say, why the fuck did you get, el-? you know, it wasn't your time to get eliminated. Well, the guy threw me out. Yeah. Motherfucker. <laughs> you know, when you're supposed to go out. So I, I really don't recall on that one. I don't remember that. Well, in the, in the, we know the circumstance that happens in 05 with Cena and Batista, right? But in that instance where someone is accidentally eliminated and it was supposed to be part of something that was in the plans, would there have been panic backstage or does someone on a headset just send in word to a referee and an IFB and they communicate it to the boys and call an audible or is it I up to the we- boys? Yeah, we didn't have IFBs in at that point. It's it's uh, figured out. There you go. So here's the finish. Owen Hart, after being eliminated, came back out to attack Shawn Michaels. And at 58.03, Michaels drop kicks, yank him out. At 58.11, Diesel and Kama throw out Duke. And um, now we're down to Diesel, Michaels, Kama, and Davy Boy. Michaels is going to clothesline Davy Boy over the top rope at 58.32, followed by Diesel throwing out Kama at 58.45. And then finally, Michaels would super kick Diesel over the top in 5849. And after the match, they tease that Diesel is going to attack Sean, but instead they do their high five routine. Meltzer gave it two and a half stars. So these guys main evented WrestleMania. One's now a good guy. One's about to be a bad guy. Certainly showing, showing shades of that. But instead of teasing it, they let the fans know, nope, we're still boys. High five. In hindsight, was that the right play, or should we have let the tension build? Do you think? Oh, we got to the tension, and at that time, when everybody thinks that you're going one way, you go someplace else. Okay. And I thought it was a nice little thing because I thought everybody in the arena and at home were thinking, "Okay, here comes the attack." So at and this point, at this point, you already had—I guess that's where I was going. Royal Rumble in your house, WrestleMania. And we know at WrestleMania, Sean's becoming the new champ. So on the next in your house, it's going to be Sean and Diesel. You already had that mapped out here at the rumble, right? In our head. Yeah. So it's the click show. As we said, Sean Michaels has the most eliminations. He has eight. It's a talent that you have. That's over on the show. The second most eliminations is a diesel. He's got five. The longest time spent in the rumble is Hunter Hearst Helmsley, 4804. Uh, the fo- following Sean's victory. This is the, the big thing that people still talk about to this day. He starts stripping to the point where it feels like, uh, we're getting kind of low with them britches and he looks at Vince and eventually pulls him back up. I mean, he's showing the world his pubes here a little bit. This is a little weird. What was your reaction? Were you, you've shown the world your pubes before. I mean, I think you said Cornette did at a show in Detroit, but I wasn't there. That show his pubes. <laughs> Chat me up. What are you thinking? I assume you're you're in Gorilla for this show. Probably, yeah. When you see Sean doing his striptease and taking it this far, are you like talking to Vince? Like, what the fuck is he doing? No, I had no, there was never anyone that sat there and go, Oh my God, he's going to expose himself. He's going to take it as far as he can go. And then tease it. I guess, I guess my question is if he's going to be your, your top guy in your, in your, your baby face, this just makes guys hate him. Right. I mean, I know the girls love him. I'm not arguing that, but I mean, come on, man, this is how guys hate him. Right. You liked him. 
Uh, no, I wasn't even watching wrestling here. All right, guys, we got to run a timeout right now to brag about something that is a part of our regular everyday routine. Of course, I'm talking about AG1. Bruce and I are big believers in athletic greens. Actually, my wife turned it on to us a few years ago at the start of the pandemic. We've been using it ever since. Now, we started because we wanted to optimize our immune system, but along the way, we've noticed we have more energy, better gut health. And let's just be honest, if you want me to take a pill or supplement or vitamin, it better taste good. This checks all my boxes, man. Now, what is this stuff? Well, with one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens. Everything you need to start your day right. The special blend of ingredients better supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, your focus, your recovery, your aging, all of your things. It's also lifestyle friendly. Whether you're trying to eat keto or paleo or vegan or dairy-free or gluten-free, AG1 has less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything, but it still tastes good. You'll also realize that it supports better sleep quality and recovery better mental clarity and alertness. We, uh, we like to think of it as like your all-in-one nutritional insurance. So here's the deal. Don't take our word for it. Go check out their reviews. They've got more than 7,000 five-star reviews. And Bruce and I believe it's time for you to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health and to make it easy. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you got to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash Foley. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Foley to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Hey guys, I'm pumped to brag about a brand new sponsor here on the program and is a personal friend of mine for many, many years. I'm talking to you about Camper Max, specializing in max discounted pricing on travel trailers and fifth wheel RVs that can be delivered anywhere in the lower 48. That's right, from your office, your cell phone, or your couch. Click or call and find out how easy it is to start enjoying that RVing lifestyle. Now, how easy is it? Well, the Camper Max discount will fit any budget offering easy financing with extended terms. It's just too easy. Thanks to my pal, Rod Wagner. I've been personal friends with Rod for a long, long time, and he is now opening up to the entire lower 48. So if you're here in the United States and you're thinking about buying a travel trailer, you're thinking about buying a fifth wheel RV, or maybe you're thinking of selling yours, visit my buddy Rod at CamperMax.com. That's C-A-M-P-E-R-M-A-X-X.com, CamperMax.com. That's Max with two X's or give him a call 256-320-7033. Either way, let the folks at Camper Max know that Conrad sent you and they're going to give you that friend of a friend hookup that I've enjoyed for oh so many years. Camper Max is the home of the Max discount. That's CamperMax.com, CamperMAXX.com. By the way, if you're looking to purchase a motorhome, hang in there. My buddy Rod is working on that now. It's all going down at CamperMax.com. Let's get out there. Let's enjoy 2023. This could be one heck of a new year. Thanks to CamperMax.com or 256-320-7033. And let them know that Conrad sent you. So let's talk about uh, the ticket prices again. 
you kind of mentioned that live events and folks like that would have been involved in it and you guys would have been involved in it do they make suggestions to vince and do they have like data i'm just curious when you get a report like this like here's the census data here's what the economics are here's the median household income is there any sort of scientific process put into this or is well hell five dollars sounds good let's do that no we, we compare ourselves we would constantly compare ourselves to ringling brothers we compare ourselves to the globe trotters we looked at what the local market, if they had a basketball team, what their prices were. And we tried to be, for the most part, especially in a market like San Antonio, that we were going to come into this huge event. We wanted to be family friendly as well. And we wanted to be affordable. And when you hear people talk about trying to go take a family of four to a live event, it's almost cost prohibitive. Yeah. So we wanted to make it affordable for families and, and for kids and want to get as many people in there as we could, make it affordable. So even though they draw a big house here with uh, 60,000 butts and seats, uh, they're still well shy of the 71,000 folks that they had promoted on television. And some of the top sections are tarped off for TV and you can briefly see them on the show, but I feel like you guys did a really good job shooting around it. And Cornette famously said, uh, this was a stadium that needed a show and not a show that needed a stadium. And I just think that's a brilliant way to put it. Um, was that the common feeling amongst any of the office uh, that uh, this is a big task to try to fill this up and it was all hands on deck to worry about marketing and strategies and angles and everybody's got to be at their best and sharpen their pencils? Sure. I mean, that, that's a cute way of saying it, and it's accurate. But it's, yeah, without a doubt, man, Vince wanted that son of a bitch sold. We were going to do whatever we had to do to sell it. Uh, Fink would announce on the show that the attendance was actually lower than the real number. Uh, surprise, surprise there. We've talked about attendance enough. I don't want to get off on that again. But he announces uh, 60,477 uh, compared to 60,525. And that's the number that both Cornette and Meltzer have. They have the exact same figures for the attendance and gate. And you can draw your own conclusions there. Uh, I wonder who got it from who. Roll Tide. Uh, Meltzer would report after the show that these figures uh, all topped even the most optimistic expectations within the company. So I want you to kind of respond to that, Bruce, and talk me through, you know, what the inner circle thought was realistic and what the expectation was, who was for it, who was against it, what did the talent think, anything you remember. We were looking for, I think everyone would have been happy if we had done 50,000 people. And of course we wanted, you know, we wanted to fill the damn thing. We would love to put 70,000 plus in there, but realistically, I think we would have been happy if we did 50,000 and that, and that would look good. Let me ask this, uh, perception is reality and it is a lot about expectation in hindsight, would it have made more sense to just pound 50,000 people on TV and say 50,000, 50,000, 50,000, 50,000, and then announce 60,000 as opposed to, say, 71, 71, 71, 71, and then announce 60? No. Why would you do that? You well, want to do 71,000, it holds 71,000, so you want to, you want to plug 71,000. Had, had, had we done, okay, 
you know, the 50,000, 50,000, then you're, the Melchers of the world would, well, they're, they're not confident in their show at all. They only are going to put 50,000 in there. You're, you're, you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. We wanted to sell it out. We wanted to promote selling the damn thing out. Yeah. We wanted to promote, come be a part of history, come be a part of a record-breaking crowd. But here's what I'm saying. If you tart part of the shit off and you say, you say you're setting it up for 50,000, then it can't, you can claim a sellout. Why would you not want, if you really want to sell it out and you have the ability to tarp something off for the staging or why would, why would you go in with the, the fetus attitude that we're only going to do 50,000? Cause you didn't do 71. We did 60. Okay. This is fun. Uh, once the show, uh, actually comes off and you guys are kind of, uh, happy that you exceeded that expectation and there's a lot of damn butts in the seats. Can you tell us who was surprised and who had the, I don't know. I told you so swagger about this. I don't know. There was, well, okay. I take that back. Um, Vince had, I, say, it. I don't, had I don't know. There's anybody that had a swagger. Uh, some of us might have because coming from Texas and trying to, to explain to people in New York, what the hell a walk up is. Um, I would look, man, I, I, I'll say it. I was extremely confident that we would have a good walk up. I was confident that they would come at the last minute and I felt I was never worried. I was never concerned that we would not have a decent walk up the last couple days of the event. All right, Bruce, well, let's talk about the walk up thing. I wanted to cover that. Um, Meltzer offered some really fun perspective, uh, about walk up. And he says that historically Lucha Libre shows didn't have a big walk up. And in the last few days, you guys sold more than 20,000 tickets. And he attributes a lot of that, uh, to something we'll cover in a minute. Uh, but explain what a walk up buy is and how promoters feel about it. Because, you know, it's interesting to me that in Mexico, kind of everything's a walk up, but here in America, if there's not a big advanced sale, people start to get nervous. Am I right? Yes, they do. But I would dispute. I think that, uh, Meltzer is completely wrong. If he said that Lucha Libre is not a walk up, because I remember when we ran Houston, Texas and we ran Houston, Texas with television maybe every I, single maybe week. I said that wrong. I, I, but, I don't think I did, but. He said but the Lucha I'm gonna, Libre I'm gonna is the walk a walk-up. Up. Yeah, Lucha Libre, yeah. he said, is a walk-up. It, it is a walk-up. Yeah. And we used to run Houston on a Friday night with the traditional stars that were on TV every week and that had a lot of promotion. And guys used to come in. Jose Lothario used to promote Sundays in the same building, and he would only promote in Hispanic in the Hispanic community, in the bars, and in a local Hispanic community, and do an all-Lucha show and outdraw us on Friday night. So historically, especially in South Texas, the walk-up, if you had a Hispanic on top in particular, it was always there. They, they came at the last minute. They supported their heroes, very loyal audience, and you could count on them. And I didn't have – San Antonio has a huge Hispanic population, and historically, San Antonio, for Joe Blanchard, for Fritz von Erich, for everybody that ran there on a regular basis, historically was a big walk-up town. Now, Northeast, man, it's all about that advance. 
And I could, you know, uh, going back, which one day uh, we may talk about Houston wrestling, but but I could go back in Houston wrestling, and I could tell you almost within 50 people, that's scary. I could tell you a house based on the advance on Friday for the the house that night, what the walk-up would be and what the house would be. I could tell you within about 50 people, give or take. And you just become used to it. You, you become, you're able to gauge the interest in the audience. And in South Texas, big walk-up town, uh, San Antonio, historically a big walk-up town. And we played to that by going to sponsors and doing the $5 tickets, $5 off your tickets. All right, let's talk about that since you brought it up. Dave attributes a lot of these last-minute sales to what he called millions of discount coupons that were printed. Um, and a lot of these tickets that were sold, he says, were at the 5 and $7 mark. So apparently locals could pick up these coupons for discounts on their ticket at Taco Bell. And they were selling uh, these tickets are going almost as fast as they're printed uh, with this coupon concept. Um, I just have to ask Taco Bell in San Antonio. Is this a rib? No, Taco Bell's huge in San Antonio. They have a ton of Taco Bells in San Antonio and Taco Bell came on as a sponsor for us. Who was in charge of, uh, putting together deals like that? God, at that time. Who to do, to do, to do, to do, to do, to do, to do. While you think about um, that, let me run through this. Meltzer also notes that the local TV, radio, and newspapers were flooded with advertising for the event. Um, and all over Southeast Texas, you could see coupons uh, for the show on cans of Dr. Pepper and at every single Taco Bell. Uh, and they even changed uh, all of the syndicated challenge shows in the market to have customized commentary uh, pushing not only the show, but where you can get these discounted coupons. So this seems like you're saying like a sponsor, like go buy Dr. Pepper, go buy Taco Bell. So it's kind of uh, mutually beneficial. But this type of push means that Vince has placed a lot of importance on the show. And I'm just curious how deals like a Taco Bell or a Dr. Pepper would have come about back then. Uh, And while you're thinking about that, do you remember this coupon concept for any other big shows like this? Because I'm not super aware of any other time that you guys did it in this big of a way. Sure. They did it in Pontiac Silverdome too. They, they did the coupons and, and we've done it in a lot of places where we've wanted to draw a large crowd and we just wanted a lot of people there. So we, we've done it before. It wasn't something new. And the idea behind it was we had Taco Bell willing to pay for it. So you offset we had Taco Bell, some of the ticket prices that you lose. You're, well, you're offsetting Also, they're paying for all the marketing. Right. So they're paying, you know, all the, the marketing and advertising, the newspaper, the television. Same thing with Dr. Pepper. They they were doing the marketing for us. They were advertising. So every time you walked into a convenience store, there was a setup. Alamo Dome, Royal Rumble, and the date, and a big picture of Sean. And... And WWF didn't that pay was for stuff that. we couldn't buy. Taco Bell paid for that, or Dr. Yeah, Pepper. Yeah, Taco paid Bell for and Dr. Pepper paid for all that. Wow. And and then we got you know we got money from it as well to be able to use our likenesses. So we were getting advertising sponsorship money, plus they were doing the marketing for us, and they were distributing 
these uh, coupons, what have you, and they were doing a lot of the market, the product placement with our guys all over town. So, yeah, we did it. Also, to the uh, individual markets, we customized all of our markets, especially when we were coming in with a pay-per-view with customized commentary. That I mean, wasn't unique to San Antonio. That I, was unique to if we had big events there. I'm saying he, this was custom because it pushed the sponsors on the show. Anytime, but we did that in every market where we ran live events and where we had big events coming in. We all we did that in every market. Uh, give me an idea of uh, how the local radio and TV budgets are determined to promote shows. I know you just said you got a lot of stuff here gratis, but like. In 2016, you may not know how they do it, but back in the day, what was like the rule of thumb? Was there a hard and fast rule of thumb for what a local promoter would have a budget for, for radio and TV? There was, and I don't, I don't know the numbers and that's not, I'm not going to tell you what the numbers is. That's I, I don't know. There was a budget. There were budgets that they had to go in and get their ad spend, whether it be radio, television, they uh, bought time within our program in and around our programming but in our within our programming we had our own localized spots that we ran in the event centers and different things that we made specific for each market but we didn't do anything outside of radio and newspaper back especially in this time we we might run a few basic cable spots and with local cable providers and things of that nature but the local promoters, this was a national promotion, so the office, they had a budget. I don't know what it was. Would it surprise you to hear that in Huntsville three years ago, their radio budget for a house show was $1,500? Yeah. That's low or high? Low. That's what I heard. That's, uh, that, sounds, that sounds low, but... Uh, Meltzer offered some fun uh, perspective here, saying the only larger paid attendance for a show in the United States was WrestleMania three. So that really puts it in perspective, you know, when you're talking about the success of this show, that this is only behind WrestleMania three as far as attendance in the United States. Uh, of course, he says that show uh, drew approximately 78,000 fans, uh, but only 75,000 paid and he also says that the WWF had topped the 40,000 paid mark on at least three other occasions outside the United States, two in Canada. One was Hogan and Orndorff. The other was WrestleMania six. And then one in England, of course, for SummerSlam 92. He says WrestleMania at the Hoosier Dome drew 62,167 fans, which is slightly more than the I, Alamo no, Dome. It was 168. Uh, but, the, oh, but the paid attendance was less at the show because it was substantially papered. Um, I can tell you're fired up about that. Uh, the rumble gate still broke the all time Texas state record, which was set back in May of 84 for the flair carry Von Eric title change at Texas stadium. Uh, that one drew 32,123 fans, which was the previous state record and a house or a gate of uh, 402,000. Bruce, did you watch this 84 Texas stadium show? Do you remember that one? I remember it. I, you know, I, I saw the, the world-class stuff at the time here and there. They didn't, we didn't get it in Houston. So I would see tapes here and there. Doesn't seeing it so empty hurt the overall experience. I mean, 32,000 is a big house, but in that stadium, it looks like nothing. Yeah, it does. And that's simply 
from the way they shot it and how how it was presented on television. If they had put everybody on one side and they shot it for TV, but they didn't, and the promoters were more interested in what was the house, yeah. how much did we make? They weren't. They didn't. They didn't care what the hell it looked like. There were actually thirty two thousand people there. Then they were happy, and they got the gate from that. So that's all they really cared about at that time. Uh, Meltzer says, considering how much money was spent in advertising on those two respective shows, this was a long way from being the most profitable house show in Texas. Um, by any account, the paid and total crowd were huge successes for the WWF, which by all accounts did perhaps its best job ever when it comes to local promotion of a show. So, you know, you know, when Meltzer, well, you know. When Meltzer's putting something over like this, saying it's the best job ever for local promotion, you guys did a hell of a job for this. I thought we did. I mean, we busted our ass. It, it was, we had people on the ground, and we took the same team that was responsible for promote, promoting WrestleManias each year, and they were on the ground to promote the Royal Rumble as if it were a WrestleMania. Do you think this is the best promotion for a non-WrestleMania show ever up to that point? Do you agree with that? Up to that point, yes. Um, just for frame of reference, when we talked about ticket prices earlier, saying that uh, tickets were 175 18 14 and 10 uh, Re- WrestleMania three tickets, uh, the bottom price was $9. So 10 years later, different market, different show, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's uh, only a buck more. For the cheapest ticket. Let's get yeah, to the just one pretty. Let's get to the Royal Rumble. Cactus Jack comes in first, and uh, this pay per view is famous for what we're going to talk about with this. But he's eventually eliminated by Chainsaw Charlie. Uh, number two, of course, is Chainsaw Charlie, and Chainsaw Charlie wound up being eliminated by Mankind. Are you following me so far? Uh, number three is going to be Tom Brandy, and he's going to be eliminated cool. by Cactus Jack and Chainsaw Charlie. So hopefully you're keeping up. <laughs> Mick Foley's in this fucker three times. Yeah, it's it's crazy, but you know the thing that got me, and you know Pat and I put this thing together. But what Mick and Terry did at the very beginning, trading the unprotected chair shots. Oh my god! Watching that twenty years later just made me cringe want to crawl under my desk horror i mean it's just it's hard to watch it was uh it's a fun show because you're ready for steve austin the entire time and the show is really built around steve austin to the point that we see him arrive in the stone cold steve austin truck which was custom painted with the smoking skull and they ran a contest and mildred bowers is announced as the winner uh, from Nashville, Tennessee and Mildred Bowers, uh, was was an older lady then. Uh, I, I don't know if she's still with us or not. She may have passed away now, but, uh, there's a fun, there's a fun video out there on YouTube. If you get a chance, I encourage you to throw it in your Google machine winner of Royal rumble, 1998 stone cold truck, Mildred Bowers. And you'll see a video of her winning her Silverado that says 100% pure whoop ass on the tailgate. Um, how was Mildred selected for this? This is fucking awesome. It's we had a, there's a company that does like sweepstakes and contests and all that. So that you keep it all on the up and up and they randomly select them through whatever process they use. I don't know if it's a computer or if someone random house or whoever just reaches into a big bin and draws it out. But 
you, we had a company that did it and handled that whole drawing. You have got to see Mildred strutting that ass in this. Oh, I've, I've seen it. Truck. I've it, seen the video you're talking about. It is so great. If you're listening and you haven't seen it, man, throw it in your Google machine. You will not regret it. Uh, so of course, Steve Austin is a, a wanted man. Everybody's out for him. The Godwins and everybody doing these skits all throughout the show. Everybody wants to know when's he going to be here. And, and so we're telling a story. Can he overcome all odds? But at the same time, we establish, in my opinion, Mick Foley as a major player because we see him three different times as Cactus Jack, uh, as Mankind, um, and and of course he's in here as Dude Love as well. So he's doing all three gimmicks, and it comes down to uh, the final deal and, here. Go ahead. And let's go back to that because that was something that Pat and I pitched events, and he was like, how the hell can he do that? He can't be in the ring at the same time. We're like, no, man. So we called Mick and said, Hey, is this something you can do? And Mick loved it, but it was <laughs> Vincent. His first reaction was how the hell are you going to do that? And then once we explained it to him, loved it. And we, we got to have our three faces of Foley in the match. Uh, I thought it was a good idea to have the three faces of Foley. Whose idea was that? That was something Pat and I came up with because what happened is we had a talent roster and on the talent roster, you had, uh, mankind, you had dude love and you had cactus Jack. So I'm thinking, well, shit, we should have all three of them. Wouldn't that be great? And Pat starts laughing. Oh my God, you could have all three. And we started playing with it and then pitched the idea and, and it actually, it actually stuck. So that was a fun, fun little bit of that rumble. No, number 30 into the ring was Vader. And, um, I, I found it kind of funny when he's marching out to the ring, knowing what we know now, of course, I'd never caught this back then. Jim Ross refers to Vader as that big old stinky grizzly bear. Exactly. Which I thought I think was hilarious. The other, the other great JR line from the Royal rumble is when Jim Cornette and Jeff Jarrett came out and attacked Owen Hart. Oh, Jim Cornette is a stain on the underwear of life. Oh, fresh. <laughs> I thought that was a great line. Uh, we get down to the final nitty gritty here and three of the final or four of the final dudes here are dude love, which is a sign that, Hey, they got a lot of confidence in Mick. He's going to be a player, uh, Farouk and, and Farouk is eliminated by the rock. Obviously that's showing you that, Hey, we're going to continue to advance this nation of domination dissension storyline. And we're, our last two are The Rock and Stone Cold. Little did we know that later that year, The Rock would be the world champion, and here we would be. Is it always a good rule of thumb that if you're in that final four or final two, that that's where, sort of where the company sees you as a top guy? Because this felt like a real uh, uh, coming out party for The Rock here. Well, obviously, the last guys in in the ring, you want to have the audience believe, Hey, one of these guys, you don't want them to be able to pick it. So you want them to believe that whoever's in the ring at that time can win this thing. So yeah, you always want top guys in there, but I think we did a good job throughout this whole rumble of telling stories with the nation fighting each other and the Farouk rock story and Steve kind of overcoming the odds. And there was just a lot of fun stories throughout the night in the rumble. Um, Steve Austin won the match. He eliminated seven folks. Meltzer gives it two and a half stars. Not my favorite rumble match ever. Where would you rank it? The top five. 
I love you for that. I was hoping <laughs> you'd say that. I was hoping you'd say that. Sean Michaels yeah, de- is de- good. definitely in my top five of Rumbles. Absolutely. I would put it up there in the top five with uh, 99, 2002, 92, 90, 89, 93, 2006, 94, 2006, yeah. 2008. Yeah, yeah, those, yeah. Are all, those are all my top five. Right. Um, next up, of course, we've got Shawn Michaels out defending his world title against The Undertaker. It's a casket match. They go 20 minutes and 37 seconds. Meltzer would write, real good work by both, Michaels in particular. Michaels looked to take one incredible bump early, taking a backdrop over the top rope and cracking his lower back on the casket as he went over. He was really lucky he wasn't hurt on that one. (laughs) Undertaker pressed him overhead and dropped him onto the floor. If you haven't seen this, uh, I recommend that you go out of your way to see it. Uh, This is a really, really good match. I enjoyed every time these guys worked, but it's three and a half stars. Uh, Eventually, you know, we're going to get lots of craziness and interference um they, they do they do a double casket spot which you know you could be critical of but at one point china knocks down the ref and then the los periquas and the new age outlaws hit the ring and all begin undertaking or attacking the undertaker kane comes out and everybody's ready for him to defend the undertaker based on what we saw in raw and his music plays he does clean house an explosion was supposed to go off to set the stage for turning on Taker, but there was a screw up on the spot, according to Meltzer. And Kane turned on him and punched him and kicked him a few times before choke slamming him into the casket. And then Michaels shut the lid for the easy victory. So, what do you think about? And Meltzer would write, after all the punishment both men had received, Kane's offense should have been more brutal, at least delivering a tombstone when it came to finishing Undertaker off. Paul Bear, who had kept off the road for a few weeks to build drama for his return, prompting a million ridiculous rumors, came out and locked the casket, and then Kane took an axe and started chopping away. They poured gasoline all over it, and then Paul Bear lit it on fire as the show went off the air. The match itself was really good, but really taken down by the finish. Three and a half stars. Lots to cover. Let's talk about the match itself. I thought it was a great match. I'm not talking about the bump or the finish. What'd you think? I thought it was an excellent match. And I wrote down why Shawn Michaels is, in my opinion, probably the greatest worker ever. When you watch the little tiny things that Shawn does in the match, how he positions himself in, in the ring and how he positions himself for his opponent, little things like grabbing to throw someone into the corner it's logical and you don't notice it as much with Sean and you notice how other guys do it where it may look like a work and it doesn't look natural. It's all natural with Sean because he puts himself in the right positions. I just was blown away by that. And that speaks to both guys, Taker and Sean was off the chart here and the match itself. Excellent on all fronts. Uh, A great story. They had some good spots we talked about how hard it is to have a false finish in a casket. They had a great false finish with Taker in the casket and Sean standing over him with the DX sign and Taker, instead of going for a choke, grabbed Sean by the nuts and threw him back into the ring. But um, top to bottom, great. I love that Meltzer talks about a screwed up spot with Kane's entrance. 
Again, this is somebody who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. There was no screwed up spot at all. We didn't do pyro there. We didn't do an explosion there because of what we were setting up for at the end with the fire at the and the casket at the end. Um, I, th- I thought it told great stories on all fronts. It made Sean, you know, the champion. He got by with the title holding on as a great heel champion does. And uh, here comes Kane. The turn at the end, fuck you, big brother, and you're done. Say goodbye. Um, we want to hear about the magic. Show us how the sausage is made. How did you guys do the uh, the fire at the end? Well, that's where we learned at the at the very end. <laughs> the trick to to have that biggest, you know, we did it. We had several caskets there, and we we tried to do it to see what it would look like, and it just didn't look good. But do you know if you mix kerosene and gasoline that you can get that big explosion and you can get the the long burning effect like we had on there? I did not know that. Yeah, well, that's a little secret next time you want to burn a casket on uh, national television. That it helps. And the the people, the fire marshal is the one who actually gave us that idea. And they, you know, they were obviously concerned how close we were to the people and, and things like that. But the whole idea behind chopping the casket up was so that there was air so the fire could breathe and pouring the the mixture of the gasoline and the kerosene and all that inside the casket just really helped to make that damn thing burn and explode and look beautiful as we got out of it on TV. So, you know, I've got to ask. I assume that the undertaker slides out of the ring somehow. It's magic. Come on, Bruce. I can't give away. I can't give away the magic. It's magic. Bruce, you haven't revealed shit on this episode. God damn it. Do it for the fans. Let's do it. Where does undertaker go? He mysteriously disappeared because he's the undertaker. The, uh, Actually, I'm trying to think of how this one this one worked. Uh, no, I think we just burned him in the casket and, and got him put out and had sa- we put salve on him in the back. No, there's a little trap door on the side. Roll out when it's time. That's why we lock the when you lock the casket. Well, um, the axe chopping on top is that just to make sure that Kane then has a visual that Undertaker actually did get out and they're not going to accidentally set him on fire. That was a good idea. Yeah, definitely. But also the, the main, the main reason, yes, if he had not been able to get out and he saw him in there, we definitely would would not have set him on fire. I know that, but but I'm asking. Yeah, but no, but yeah, the, the main, the main reason was to give it oxygen. Okay. Give the fire oxygen. Okay. All right. Um, this is not something that you're allowed to do. You can't just go set a fucking giant fire in a building like this. You guys no. Had, had a very specific square there. Hypothetically, did you have to get with some sort of building commissioner and take him for a walk beforehand? Well, we had to get with the fire marshal to make sure that he approved it since we were uh, setting things on fire in an enclosed space in the city of San Jose. Yeah. And, and they were and this particular fire marshal was extremely cool. And he's the one that kind of helped us with the concoction and, and is the one who came up with the idea of uh, putting the hole in the casket to give it. And he felt that even made it safer. If we can make it bigger, it'll be safer. Well, no, because it contained it because the walls weren't going to burn out. 
but you could make that fire inside of the damn thing and make it look bigger. Right. Well, there's been, uh, I mean, I guess the real reason we're here is to talk about Mike Tyson, to talk about this fire and to talk about the back injury. So let's do that. Um, there's been lots of rumor and innuendo that Sean really wasn't that hurt here. And it's kind of funny seeing Meltzer, right? He's lucky he wasn't hurt there. Here's what Sean has said about the match. Two days later, we were shooting vignettes in Davis, California, and I felt a stabbing pain in my lower back. I flew home that Wednesday. And when I woke up Thursday morning, I couldn't move. It felt like there was a hot searing knife tearing through my back. I'd never felt so much pain in my life. I couldn't stand up. So I rolled out of bed. My phone was a few feet away from my bed, but I couldn't get to it. I could reach the cord. So I grabbed it and pulled the phone to me. I dialed up my parents and said, I can't move. I need somebody to come get me to the hospital. They called an ambulance and came right over to the house with my arms and legs dragging lifelessly behind me. I started crawling towards the front door. It was probably 10 yards from my room to the door and my folks left 20 minutes away and they beat me to the door. The ambulance soon came afterwards and the EMTs put me on a stretcher and took me to the hospital. Once there, they shot me up with Demerol and took an MRI. And then they told me I had a couple of herniated discs and one was completely crushed. He gave me a bunch of pills and sent me home and I called Vince and told him what was going on. Um, what are we going to do? He asked Sean allegedly says I can do WrestleMania, but I think it would be best if I could have the February pay-per-view off. This is very serious. And allegedly Vince said, I want you to come here. I have a doctor. I want you to see, let's get a couple of opinions on it. We'll get you better for WrestleMania. That's the important thing. So Vince wanted him to go see a doctor in New York named, or the guy who treated Dennis bird, who was the famous New York Jets lineman who had broken his neck during a game. So he flew to New York and went to see him and the doctor examined him and said, you're through, you're never wrestle again. So he's obviously upset by that. And, um, we're off to the races, I guess. What do you remember about the injury that night? Did Sean come to the back complaining about the bump? Was he, was he hurting that night? When do you first hear? Sean called from his house in San Antonio and said he can't walk. Well, I, working backwards, I remember uh, the phone call when Sean couldn't walk and the ambulance was on the way and his girlfriend was involved in there somewhere and his parents were upset because he couldn't walk and had been rushed to the hospital. We didn't know what the hell was going on. So once we got the word about the, the discs and everything, Vince wanted him to come up and see this doctor. And pretty much exactly, you know, as you just said, that's pretty much exactly how it went down. And we were concerned that, you know, that this was it. But that night, I think Sean's adrenaline was so much that, you know, God, he worked the rest of the match. He came back and made a comment about, man, I whacked the shit out of my back on that bump. But that was the extent of it. He just thought he whacked the shit out of his back and that it was going to be a bruise. And that was a part of it. Didn't think it was a real serious injury at that time. And obviously wasn't giving him enough problems that he couldn't do the match. But then a few days later, all hell broke loose. When the office hears, oh, he's hurt his back. Do people start to get very skeptical based on what we talked about earlier? 
Sean not really wanting to drop a belt. I'm not saying, and you defended it back then a few, I mean, an hour ago, but I'm just asking where a lot of people sort of going, oh, here we go again. Yeah. And I think that's why Vince wanted him to come up and see his doctor. Probably to legitimize, legitimize it and make sure that he was telling us the truth and to try and help him if he was hurt. But I think there, there were definitely skeptics. Well, the next night is uh, when things really started to take off. It's the Tyson angle. Melzer would write the angle, which started when a heavily booed Vince McMahon brought an even more booed Mike Tyson and his entourage to the ring. Just when McMahon was going to make the announcement of Tyson's role in WrestleMania, Austin showed up. All right. Of course, we know that Austin would challenge Tyson here and McMahon starts flipping out. Austin winds up flipping Tyson off with both hands. Tyson shoves Austin. There's a major pull apart and McMahon is yelling, you ruined it. Damn it. Um, and somewhere in here, Tyson calls Austin an F word and, uh, we're done. Um, the hottest angle in the company history, you think at this point, I mean, obviously you've got your hottest star and he's in the ring and you guys are doing something that looks like a shoot with the most controversial pay-per-view character the world's ever known. And both guys treated it like a shoot. Everybody out there treated it like a shoot. It was, it was just magic. And it was that lightning in a bottle moment where you went, Oh my God, we've got something special here. And we probably could have done everything that we did at WrestleMania off of that one moment alone. But I remember Vince coming back and going, Oh my God, that was, that was just insane. And we sat down took our books out <laughs> and started booking Mike and went in and, uh, Jr. and I went in to thank Tyson and his people. And that was a scary scene because Tyson had $10,000 in his, uh, coat pocket. We go back and watch this. He, in his uh, breast pocket, had 10 grand, $100 bills, and it all went flying during that melee. So his people, they were all scrambling, picking up $100 bills and counting out the money in the dressing room. And Mike was a little upset at that point. Well, it's funny that um, the next day, this is so well done, the night after the Rumble, that all the media outlets are reporting it's going to be Austin and Tyson at WrestleMania. I mean, everybody's speculating that that's the plan. And this gets mainstream coverage everywhere. ESPN, Fox sports, USA today, the AP, everybody's got it. I mean, when you wake up the next morning and see it's everywhere, everybody's got to be all smiles and high fives, right? Oh God, we were ecstatic because the, uh, I think it was, it may have been on the front page of USA today. I mean, we were everywhere. We were on ESPN. We, we were on everything. Mike Tyson was news. Steve Austin was red hot and everybody was picking this thing up. You know, Mike Tyson here was so funny because when he was at the Royal rumble and they're interviewing him after Austin wins, uh, Austin or Tyson is putting over how much he loves cold stoned. And, uh, you know, when, when, when quizzed about his favorite wrestlers, he starts naming Bruno San Martino, who at this point is in like a feud with the company. But the report was that backstage, he could not hang out with the old timers enough. He loved Pat Patterson, Arnold Scotland, and 
Tony Gurria and Jerry Briscoe and Sergeant Slaughter and Blackjack and all the guys, right? Oh my God. And all he wanted to do was meet Gorilla Monsoon. He, yeah, that's, that's where he was. Mike was so damn respectful and so easy to work with. He was, he was a joy to have around. So Mike got along good with everybody. Was anybody, um, combative or resistant to Mike being there once he was actually there? Not at all, man. Everybody wanted to meet him and get pictures with him and everything, but he, he wanted to meet everybody. He was, he was like a kid in a candy store. Well, it was a big deal to have Mike Tyson there. And of course we're going to cover WrestleMania 14, uh, for the anniversary coming up in a couple of months, but uh, all in all, you know, this is a pretty monumental show because you've got sort of the end of an era with LOD. Uh, you've got Mick Foley sort of coming out party with all three personas, the rocks down to the nitty gritty stone cold goes over Mike Tyson's here. And we've got a back bump that has the whole business talking. Where do you rank Royal rumble? 1998 all time. Top five. I didn't even say that. I mean, it's, it's, it's our new gimmick. Hey, you know what? I mean, it was, um, really and truly the overall card and the overall presentation was one of the better Royal rumbles for a total presentation because having the Tyson thing and and just having Mike in those crowd shots made it unique and made it feel pretty damn important. Uh, let's rapid fire some questions from Facebook, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestles, where you can ask questions for next week's show, Royal rumble, 1988, Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Uh, what was the idea for the poster with a bunch of nails in Austin's head? It's very confusing. Uh, that was the old, what was it? Pinhead? Yeah. Hell the guy, it just looked, it looked cool. And one of the, uh, creative services folks did that and it looked cool. And Vince liked it. Chris wants no real reason. Chris wants to know why wasn't Kane in the rumble match? Because we wanted him to be a surprise in the undertaker, Sean match. There was speculation as to whether or not Kane was going to be a part of DX or side with undertaker. So you wanted to keep him out. Where did you get your caskets from? Caskets are us. Um, how would Bret Hart have fit in had he stayed? You know, it could have been, frankly, it could have been Bret Hart in, in that whole scenario, um, with undertaker and then going on to drop the title to Steve at WrestleMania, but we'll never really know. Uh, was there ever any thought to having dude love win the Royal rumble? <laughs> no, there wasn't lots of questions about whether or not you think this injury really kept Sean out for four years, or maybe was that some of his stubbornness from not wanting to come back? I think it was stubbornness on Sean's part and stubbornness on Vince's part. I think Sean, uh, had the time and was like, if they're going to pay me. I'm going to sit out. And I think Vince on his part was, if he wants to sit out, he's going to miss out on making a lot of money and being a part of this. Uh, Stuart wants to know what was your favorite Tom Brandy match? Uh, remember that one with Sal sincere. That was probably it. Andy wants to know, was there ever any talk between Taker and Sean of calling a different finish because of the injury? I guess the answer is no. If he didn't know how bad he was hurt, right? No. And he, he worked that whole match and did everything that he needed to do. Do you think he didn't notice because of adrenaline or was he also probably sort of self-medicating at the time already? No, it was probably adrenaline. Uh, Jared wants to know why in the hell uh, is one of the Harris twins giving pile drivers in a Royal rumble? 
Oh my God. I saw that and about died. I have no idea that. And it was to Terry Funk. Terry probably called it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something that's over with all of us. And that's Jimmy's famous seafood.com. I am so mm-hmm. pumped that they are sponsoring our show because now we get to remind the world that they have the best crab cakes in the world. It's not even a secret. Everybody in wrestling knows it. It is the most famous wrestling restaurant of all time. It is much more than just a gimmick, though. Sincerely, the best crab cakes in the world. If you have them, here's a warning. You will be ruined. You won't order crab cakes anywhere else. Now, here's what's cool about Jimmy'sFamousSeafood.com. You may not have known that they ship food nationwide. Not only for guys like me and you, but the Bowies. They order their meals from here all the time. But here's a little pro tip. When you're ordering high quality cuisine like this, the tricky part is the shipping can get expensive. What if we showed you how to make it free? That's right. Free two day nationwide shipping on orders over 125 bucks. When you use the promo code wrestle. Now you can get the Maryland crab cakes, the best you've ever had. The soups, the chowders, the oysters, the signature steaks. Don't sleep on those. The best prime rib I ever had was from Jimmy's Famous Seafood. Plus, they got incredible desserts, even gluten-free items. Now, they've got gift boxes if you're trying to figure out what that last-minute gift for somebody in your life should be. Somebody who's hard to buy for. Nobody ever complains about the world's best colossal Maryland crab cakes. You'll get four of them in the Famous Gift Box. You'll also get two different crab soups, a crab dip, seafood seasoning, and their signature bay sauce. Or maybe it's time for bowl season. Maybe you're getting ready for those playoffs. Why not a tailgate bundle? It's two pounds of wings, a full rack of ribs, a pint of crab dip, and even the crab cake mix. Or better yet, just create your own package. For over 40 years, this family, that's right, a family-owned business. Don't you just love that? Has been featured on diners, dine-ins, and dives, beat Bobby Flay, and so much more. Bruce Pritchard and I have done shows here we go every time we're in Maryland and Bruce, you were going way back when in the nineties, but right now you can have it delivered to your house with free shipping. When you use the promo code wrestle 14,816 fans in the building of which 13,597 were paying 630,050 bucks. Another 137 grand and change in merchandise. Whew. What a house. There's one dark match on the show. A couple of guys. I don't know if they'll ever do anything in the business. Christian and Jeff Hardy. Uh, this Christian guy got the pin in 11 minutes with, uh, what would become the unprettier, uh, at this point, it was still referred to by Dave Meltzer as Tommy Rogers, Tom Akazi. and Meltzer loved the match. It went 11 minutes and he says it was the second best match on the entire show. A pretty cool peek into the future here. 14 months after this in the same building, these two men are going to be a part of that famous triple ladder match that really helps put them on the map at WrestleMania 2000. Let's get to Sunday night heat. It did a 4.77 rating. That's actually higher than nitro six days prior, which only did a 4.4. They opened with a montage of the Austin McMahon feud. And then Kevin Kelly and Shane McMahon opened the show. What'd you think about Kevin and Shane as the uh, voice of Sunday night heat? Yeah, I thought they were fine. I just don't think that Shane, uh, Shane wasn't a commentator. Shane wasn't a color guy. I don't think that that was his forte. 
Kevin Kelly, to me, was a really good play-by-play guy. I think he's still a pretty good play-by-play guy. But them as a team, and I just don't think that was Shane's forte. So always felt like it was forced to me. Let's talk a little bit about um, Vince, Gerald, and Pat Patterson coming to the ring for no chance in hell. Uh, Shane joins them in the ring and Vince announces that Austin has 30 minutes to arrive at the arena or he's going to be eliminated from the Royal rumble. I guess I should mention here that we've also seen footage of Austin trying to pull up to the arena in his pickup truck and a parking lot attendant tells him that uh, Mr. McMahon is only allowing limousines in the VIP parking lot. Austin gets angry, peels out of the parking lot and says he'll find a limo. So at this point now McMahon says, well, he's only got 30 minutes or he's eliminated. And we also see mankind is going to have to wrestle a warm up match against a mystery opponent on the show. And Shane goes back to the broadcast table and, uh, he, uh, Vince and his crew leave. And then we see a limo pull into the parking lot. After the break, the Stooges meet up with the limo and a large black man wearing a ski mask exits the limo and goes into the arena with the Stooges. This is directly from the observer, Bob Holly and Scorpio beat Taylor and uh, Christopher in three minutes and 52 seconds. Uh, the work was not good. According to Dave Meltzer, uh, we do see, uh, a way to set up the acolytes attacking the job squad, which has the undertaker. And Paul bear made up coming to the ring and uh, a shot of mankind is shown in the boiler room and Shane's taunting him while on commentary and mankind's calling him a pretentious little twit. And he's making that rhyme because he's saying he wouldn't quit. And, uh, this is a pretty important promo because you see mankind scream that the rock is going to be the one to scream. I quit. I quit. I quit. And Shane thanks mankind for the kind words. Then we see a stone cold countdown clock, which is giving us the exact time that Vince gave Austin to arrive at the arena. And of course we've got a continued shot here in the parking lot, which allows a monster truck limo to appear. And then barrel over a bunch of cars. Like you would see at some arena show for monster trucks. Austin jumps out the the driver's door and comes to the ring. Tell me about this monster truck limo. Did you guys find it first and then just reverse book all this stuff? Where in the world does one source and who in the world sources a monster truck limo? Well, you go in the phone book to monster truck limos are us and give them a call. And there's, there's quite a few in Anaheim to be exact. There was, there seemed to be a, a fondness during the Austin era of different motor vehicles for Steve to ride in and crash and do different things with, I believe that this one, because there were so many, we were working on the, uh, stone cold monster truck in general to compete in the monster truck competition that toured and goes around the country and you had your grave diggers and all that. Well, they wanted a stone cold monster truck in talking to those folks about licensing and everything. The idea came out, you know, what, 
what do you have? And they had this limo available out there. Um, it was a limo body on a monster truck base. So, hell, that's that made kind of wrote itself. And Vince loved to have Steve come in and destroy shit with motor vehicles. So it was served every purpose that there was. And eventually, I think we actually got that stone cold monster truck as well. But it kind of like was all this, everything. It was a perfect storm. It all came together at once and we used it. I guess I should mention we, uh, we had a segment here that's worth mentioning when Austin does come in with that limo, he eventually gets in the ring. And of course, as part of the contract that he can't touch Austin or he can't touch McMahon, but McMahon takes advantage of that and slaps Austin and then bails. And immediately the stooges are there to catch the ass whooping from Austin. You know, that's sort of a fun way to put over the pay-per-view for sure. Uh, let's get to it. Well, I guess before we should, we see Vince McMahon oiling himself up on Sunday night heat. He, uh, there's a shot that's airing of Vince from the back with his shirt off, rubbing baby oil on himself. And he tells the stooges it's not baby oil. It's man oil, pal. My God. All you got to do is you go on this little thing called the internet and you go to man oil is us. Oh no, don't and do that. What? No, no, but it's right there. It's yeah. man oil RS, but you know, you get a lot of things on the internet and just, you know, put your credit card in and they ship it directly to your door. And that's where he got his man oil. But Vince McMahon wins the Royal rumble. 56 minutes, 38 seconds. It's never specified on this show how long it will be in between people joining in. And there doesn't seem to be a set time. Well, Conrad, I, I, uh, ran a stopwatch and I timed every single interval. And yeah, there was no, (laughs) it's amazing. I I think every one of them were, were pretty much different. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like it's 90 seconds. Sometimes it's clearly not. Uh, well, but, sometimes it's, it's a minute and 11 seconds. It's crazy. <laughs> sometimes it's two and a half minutes. Hey, but who's counting? We start with McMahon and Austin and McMahon is coated up in the baby oil here. Chat me up here. Is this Vince McMahon's like fantasy. I mean, this has to be something that even though he tries to downplay it and not get overly excited or acknowledge it for anybody, the way he's carrying on here, he's having fun. Oh, hell yeah. He's having fun. Come on. This is what Vince dreamed of since he was a kid. Sure. He always wanted to be a performer. Vince always wanted to be Dr. Jerry Graham. He always wanted to be in the spotlight. He wanted to be that nasty heel that everyone despised. So hell yeah, he was loving it. He's a performer. He loved getting out there and doing that shit. I got to tell you, it was fun to go back and watch this because the crowd is just so into this and Austin's wearing him out, gets him into the corner, stomps for what feels like forever, flips him off one final kick. As Michael Cole would say, vintage Austin 
I just loved it. Their interaction at the beginning was unbelievable. I loved it. McMahon gets one low kick in and, uh, Meltzer wrote McMahon came out with the oil and tan in a bottle that bodybuilders use coming on stage, walking around like a contestant bodybuilder with the famous pro wrestling mill mascaris walk. And, uh, yeah, Golga comes in next because I know when I think about Austin and McMahon, Golga's who I want next. Damn right. To my surprise, the crowd's so hot that Golga is actually getting over. Like the crowd is really with their little oddities, hand movements, you know, the old public enemy, put your hands in the air gimmick. Austin and McMahon wind up brawling to a women's bathroom. And when they do, it's revealed that this was all a trap. McMahon had lured him in and the corporation is going to destroy Austin and leave him laying. Draws comes in next with face paint. Not a look we saw very often edges out next. And then Gilbert comes in and Gilbert is getting the full Goldberg like treatment, huge reaction from the crowd. Steve Blackman's out next. So let's run through that. We start with Austin McMahon. Then we run through all these guys, Dan Severn, Tiger Ali saying, and to my surprise, blue Manny comes out, gets a hell of a pop. Once he scoots in the ring, does his mani dance, the crowd responds. It's really weird because I don't even remember Blue Mini being in a Royal Rumble, much less his dance getting over like that. This crowd was so into this match and it's names that you wouldn't normally expect there to be a big pop for, but they're here. It's, it's fun to go back and look at times when the job squad and the oddities were really, really over. At this point in the match, though, it doesn't feel like we've got a contender for somebody who might actually win the thing who would have helped lay out this Royal Rumble as far as entrance of, you know, the order of the entrance and all that. I think Pat and I laid it out for the most part. What's the story? You know, we had the, the idea behind it was start with and and this was my bitch. Uh, what I. What I didn't like about it, um, Actually, Terry Taylor uh, worked with us on it as well. But here's what I what I hated about it. Vince and Austin start, two biggest names. Vince, first time, you know, being in the ring type thing, actually in a match. Austin, the hottest fucking guy in the territory. And they're gone five minutes into the match. And yes, we had little bits with them where you saw them back and forth, but... Um, you didn't have any Austin. You didn't have any events in the match. And I think that that was a big, big lure for people to see them interact with, with other guys in the Royal rumble. So that part, I, you know, we were, we, we had our hands tied. This is, these are the spots we have to get in. This is how we're going to do it. Um, so we had to figure it out. We just, we had to figure, figure it out. And, when you look at everybody in totality of guys that are entered in the Royal rumble, you know, it was an Austin McMahon (laughs) Royal rumble. Uh, you had a few other names in it, but it was tough. I mean, it, it was, it was just, it's not as easy as everybody thinks you got to figure out spots for 30 different guys. And 
know what the hell's going on at, at all times. And, and it, it's writing a 60 minute match that you literally have to write. Cause one spot goes in into another guy's entrance and this exit goes into something else. So, um, it was just, it was difficult. We had our hands tied with the Austin McMahon interaction or lack thereof. It is pretty, uh, exciting when I saw Tiger Ali Singh come in. Well, he came in, his was only a minute 30 interval. The average interval was about a minute 35. If you're interested. The lights go out eventually when it's just Jesse James and Mabel. Undertaker comes out. The acolytes and Midian hit the ring and they decide to attack Mabel and they drag him away. Kurgan shows up. Gangrel's here. Well, well and that was... And that was the longest interval. Shut the that fuck was, out. Oh, seriously, it was. It was two and a half minutes from the time that Road Dog came out and we had a blackout. It was two and a half minutes until Gangrel came out. That we had that we did the whole thing with Taker. And we didn't send anybody out for two and a half minutes. Felt well, like an eternity. Well, but you knew the good wrestling was coming because Kurgan was out next. Yeah. Um, Meltzer would write Kurgan showed up and the next 90 seconds were worse than the previous 35. Uh, Al snow was next in, uh, gold dust, then Godfather, by the way, big pop for Godfather and the crowds even, uh, chanting, we want hose, which is kind of fun. Instead of hose though, they got the mayor canes out. Um, the orderlies show up. And Kane gives one a choke slam. He jumps over the top rope, eliminating himself, and the crowd's sort of down on that. And then Vince McMahon shows back up wearing a sweatshirt, and he's going to do commentary for like the next half hour. Yeah, no shit. But but before that, we had we gave Kane. Kane had the diesel spot, and that was the spot of going in and clearing house and and standing in the ring alone. Um. And that's actually what we call it. We would always have the diesel spot because we did it kind of as a way to spotlight diesel in his first Royal rumble. And then each year we'd go, okay, who's going to get the diesel spot and come up with some way for some guy to come out and clear the ring. And it was Kane's turn this time. And then the orderlies coming out and him eliminating himself. But then it was, you know, you're sitting there looking at it going, man, we got no Vince. We got no Austin. We got to do something. And then the idea was we'll put Vince on commentary. And so he's back out there and you're getting Vince, but he's not in the ring. So yeah, it was a lot of caveats. We've got, uh, an ambulance. That's going to come back at this point, this time with Austin driving it. I guess I should remind everybody that when he was left for dead earlier in the women's bathroom, that's a real sentence. They carted him out, not through the back, but through the front of the building to where they're going outside, but there's fans everywhere and Austin's on a stretcher. It was a surreal scene. I don't remember seeing anything like that before. It wasn't like a loading dock. It was just out the door. Uh, but, but here the ambulance comes back and Austin runs in, goes after McMahon, but he's attacked by shamrock boss man comes in. Hunter Hearst Helmsley and Val Venus are in next. 
then X-Pac and Mark Henry, then Jeff Jarrett. Um, the crowd, of course, dies when Deborah goes to the back. That's who got Jared to pop. Uh, Delo's in next. And this time he's got Jacqueline and Terry Runnels, which I don't really get because he didn't, he just calls her to have a miscarriage. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. And then you have your second longest interval in between entrance. And after Delo is, is out there, now you got two minutes and 18 seconds. Listen, well, well, uh, who am I, who am I talking to? What? What's going on? You fucking nerd. You're over here with a goddamn stopwatch time and interest. I did. You used to make, I did. whenever we would have a, a recap of one of these shows and Meltzer would make mention of it, you just flew off the handle, making fun of him. And now I guess you figured out how to use your fancy stopwatch app on your phone. And you're There's fucking- this thing called a lap. And I saved every one of them. You can go back and you could look at the different intervals all the way through. Jesus. But no, it, it, here's here's the thing. Running gorilla, and, and a lot of times I, I would get so mad because I just wanted to run the two-minute clock. It's easier that way. <laughs> but we had so many things that had to happen before the next guy could come out. And then I would always go back to the very first Royal rumble and Dick Ebersol and Titan time. So it was just for shits and giggles. I was like, man, I remember this and I remembered just every, everybody was different and everything was different. And I, it was one of the very first times that I didn't just run a two minute or 90 second clock that I just was waiting for spots and sending guys. And I would just, I'd wait for a spot and go 10, nine, and they would put the clock up. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I don't know what happened to Bruce, but I hope he shows up next week. Uh, Owen Hart comes in. Uh, Austin throws a water pitcher in McMahon's face at ringside, but McMahon doesn't come into the ring. Eventually. Uh, Austin goes after McMahon at ringside, throws him over the barricades into the crowd and then back into the ringside area, uh, hard chair shot, gets him in the back of the head. Austin's killing him. Vince hits a low blow. Austin sells it momentarily and then recovers, hits the stunner forearm off the middle rope. And this brings the rock to ringside with the world title. He's dressed of course, and rock and Austin argue, allow McMahon to dump him from behind. It's an easy win. And Meltzer would say probably the worst rumble ever when it came to the wrestling, but at least they constructed some stories to the match star and a half pretty strict criticism or stiff criticism, worst rumble ever. It did tell a story, but, uh, not all that great. What say you, I hated it. I Uh, hated it. And I wrote it. It it was, it it was just tough to do. We, We had handcuffs on. It did tell a story. And to that, okay, uh, I give it credit. We told some good stories, but it, 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 the match itself was not good. And we didn't get to do as much Gaga and good shit in the, in the match itself that we normally would have. And that, that's my biggest critique of it. We told one story and usually we get to tell, we, we would tell quite a few and, and intersperse shit and have little Easter eggs and nuggets in the damn thing. That wasn't the case here. Um, we, you know, the undertaker story a little bit with Mabel, the Kane story, but the rest of it, it was, 
Austin McMahon, and you only got him for a short period. So that was frustrating to me, but yeah, I don't think it was a good rumble at all. 25 minutes and 47 seconds is the longest anyone spends in the ring. And that's Steve Austin's total time. Of course he was in there at the start and the finish, but there was the big chunk in the middle for both him and McMahon where they were out. And Meltzer would say it's the second lowest time for any wrestler. Uh, that was the longest in a Royal rumble. The lowest was 1988 for Bret Hart with 25 minutes and 42 seconds. Normally there's some sort of, you know, iron man who makes it the majority of the match. And that didn't happen here. Can't believe this is real, but woo wings, your very own virtual restaurant concept is now open and fans can enjoy the legendary flavors and world championship wings by ordering with their Uber eats or Postmates app. Woo wings is now open in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, as well as Huntsville and Tuscaloosa right here in Alabama. Many more locations coming soon as a virtual restaurant. Woo wings is looking to partner with existing restaurants in major metro areas. Tell your favorite sports bar or local restaurant you want Woo Wings in your town and to visit rickflairwings.com for more information on how to become a partner. But if you're in Nashville, San Antonio, Jacksonville, Huntsville, or Tuscaloosa, hop on your Uber Eats or Postmates app and look for Woo Wings and try the only chicken wings worthy carrying the name of the 16-time world heavyweight champion, Woo Wings. Be sure to check out rickflairwings.com to become a partner. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.